Power Podcast this week, director Andre Overdahl pops by to tell scary stories in the pod booth about scary stories to tell in the dark. I fell in love with it. It was such a throwback to the Amblin movies I grew up with. Plus, Jerry Butler has fallen. Oh, no. But don't worry. He's just fallen into the pod booth where he's going to talk about Angel Has Fallen. If you want intellectual conversation, Benedict Cumberbatch. But if you want dirty <laughs> stories about dogs fucking with their legs, Jerry Butler's your man. <laughs> All that and usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that is glad to welcome its terrifying foes to the movie podcast arena. Because if it's one thing this world needs right now, it's another fucking movie podcast. Welcome, one and all. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast, which this week is brought to you by the National Lottery Cinema Day. How Ooh. exciting. And this week, I am joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning. Not one colleague. We're not doing any of that prime number shenanigans. We got prime numbers wrong last week, Helen, by the way. Yeah, apparently. Apparently one is not a prime number. Yeah. Surely one is the primest of all numbers. I would have thought so. It's pretty prime. It's yeah. the loneliest of numbers. It's the prime it directive. It's the loneliest number you'll ever need. Mm. Two can be as bad as one, though. Yeah. Three is the magic number. That is the magic number. It is indeed. Um, did I be joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning? Uh, you've heard them both already. Uh, one is Ben Travis, the nicest guy in showbiz. Who's saying that about me? Hi. <laughs> I feel like we should get Tom Hanks in here for a nice off immediately. A nice off. Or Michael Palin. Oh, yes. Also joining us in the Empire Podcast as per contractual obligation. Boy. It's a delight to have you here. Just reading your name. Hel- Helen O'Hara. Helen O'Hara. Uh, how are you? I am Great well. small talk. Fantastic. Thanks. I am glad. I'm glad you are. I presume you said well. I wasn't listening. Sure. Let's go with that. Let's go with that. Helen is good. Uh, what have you been up to? I mean, you can't stun me with these things. I don't remember. Oh, I'll tell you what I did. I went to see Fleabag in the theatre last night. No way. Oh, How did Phoebe will How did you get to see that? I got a friend to buy them. Mm, it's I need pretty, to get one of these friends. Mm, it's pretty niche. You need a sort of an Ollie Richards or a Cat Brown to just be there People when they go on lives. sale and boom, buy People them. People who don't have lives, they a lot of spare time lives. and disposable income. They, I don't know that they have any of those things, but they um, are wonderful people and are very organised about their theater, theatrical ticket buying, and that's why we get tickets to the hot shows. The hottest shows in town. How was Fleabag? It was hot. <laughs> what, was, was the priest there? <laughs> no, he wasn't. No, it's basically, it's a one-woman show, and it's essentially, if you've seen season one, you know some of the content, mm-hmm. but it is it is that that format, and she is incredible, and, um, and it was brilliant. And we had, you know, we're not rich, so we were up in the in the gods um but it's the Wyndham theater is pretty good and you can get a decent view from there so i felt involved ben what have you been up to i have moved house two times within what? the space of about a month and a half which i highly do not recommend so um <laughs> i've had a busy summer but I, that's all done now and i'm ready to get back on watching films every night and Woo-hoo. crashing out and yeah oh, living the dream young people mm, nowadays eh? young people in my days i was Injecting ferrets with heroin. That's what I was doing. Hello, RSPCA. <laughs> I have a historic <laughs> crime to report. It's a victimless crime. It, I mean, again, we'll discuss victims and their definition later. Okay, so we've got a lot to talk about this week, so mm. let's not waste any more time with uh, inane chit-chat. Uh, let's get on to this week's question, which comes from at Mrs. Pancakes. Ooh, that's mm, nice. Pancakes. Mrs. Pancakes. Mm. I just watched... This is... Mrs. Pancakes, not me. Mm. I just watched Sliding Doors. Ah, oh, classic. But in a different universe, what 
do you think you watched instead? Mm? Yes. Mm. Um, by the way, before I get to this question, has there been a movie title in recent years that has entered the cultural lexicon as much as Sliding Doors? Did that enter the cultural lexicon? Yeah. How many people, how many times have you heard that was a real Sliding Doors moment? So many times. Like if, that, if that goal had gone in for that player, it would have been a real Sliding Doors moment. Who knows what might have happened for them if, you know, I had done something with my life. What a real Sliding Doors moment that would have been for me. Huh. You know, referring to that moment in your life where things changed, but you didn't, you know, if it gone, things had gone in one direction, your life would have changed. Sure. I might have been happy. I might have been, you know, I might not have been doing a, a weekly podcast in a in a grey, dull booth with two of the worst people I've ever met. Is this why Gwyneth Paltrow doesn't know which films she's been in? Because <laughs> there are various versions all of sliding doors reality. Moments. Yeah, so mm. sometimes she's in Spider-Man and sometimes she's not. And mm. sometimes she knows who Samuel L. Jackson is and sometimes she doesn't. That makes sense. <laughs> I mean, as much as anything makes sense. Mm. And that is, of course, as discussed last week, my college roommate you're talking about. So Gwyneth Paltrow. Hmm. Goop everywhere. Uh, Anyway, the question from Mrs. Pancakes is, I just watched Sliding Doors and thought Gwyneth Paltrow's English accent wasn't too bad, Mm. if a bit posh. What do actual English people think about Americans doing accents? Good and bad examples. So naturally, I'm going to turn to one of two Northern Irish people in the room. (laughs) I was going to say. What do we think English people, who are obviously the scum of the earth, the worst, uh, think about Americans Mm -hmm. doing accents? I think it varies. I think there's a li- there's wariness, generally speaking, about it. Gwyneth's, as I remember, even at the time, was widely acclaimed uh, in both Emma and Sliding Doors. She w- that was considered to be a very good English accent. Don't forget Shakespeare in Love. And Shakespeare in Love, true. Sometimes, however, they're rubbish, let's be honest. Uh, and sometimes they're just not even present, like Don Shields in Oceans and you He's, name it. He does try. He does try. He's very trying, certainly. He hits hits London. He hits the greater London area, I would say. I mean, if you define the greater London area as the planet Earth, then sure. Even maybe the Western Hemisphere. It's recognisably an accent from the planet Earth. That's true. But is it recognisably an accent from... Because he uses Cockney and Rhyming Slang. He does. I presume that he's born uh, within sound of the bow bells. Yes. And so would it pass muster on an average episode of EastEnders if he turned up with his Cockney accent? No, it wouldn't, would it? 100% no. 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 That's bad. But here's the thing about that accent. I don't know whether it's knowingly, deliberately bad. I assume it is. Or whether he just couldn't do it and they just decided to go with it because you're going to put Don Cheadle in your movie put Don Cheadle put in your Don movie Cheadle even if he's going to shit accent yeah I, f- I, f- I feel like it's knowing I feel like there are enough people in that movie who could have said <laughs> you know what Don that's it's not, not right <laughs> there's no need for this character to be from the East End of London Don there's, there's none. none it doesn't play into the plot in <laughs> any way shape or form or is, he, is it one of those things where an actor's ego is writing Come checks on. that their uh, voice can't, can't cash. <laughs> That's a complicated sentence, but I think I navigate my way through it. For example, has he gone, guys, I've got an amazing Cockney accent. And he goes, oh, what? And they're just like, what the fuck no, is that? No, but I can believe him doing that, saying that as a joke, and then Soderbergh going, that's hilarious, do that. And he goes, why is it hilarious? No, I believe he he knows it's hilarious. I believe yeah, he yeah no one hundred no think come he on. Spent six months in East <laughs> Grinstead. Is that in London? Grinstead, no, no, that's no. why it doesn't sound right. Okay, <laughs> okay. Who knows? He's I been... I trust in 
both Don Cheadle and Steven Soderbergh in that case. All right. Okay. Um, let's talk about Keanu Reeves in Dracula. Yes. Yeah. Oh, so oh. great. So, oh. so, obviously so bad, it's great. It is great, but in a particular way mm. of badness. But here's the thing, right? Accents change over time. That's true. So who's to say that his accent isn't spot More on? More authentic. Than we know. Yeah, and Than we could possibly know. But he might have found wax cylinders of people talking that's like true. that. And they might have talked like, I know where the bastard sleeps. It might have been, <laughs> it might have been perfect. Look, he's traveled through time. He knows things that we don't know. It's so it. true. That's so it. true. <laughs> Please do that accent again. I know where the bastard sleeps. <laughs> Why? Like, he's not the only person who's culpable in that movie. Oh, no. I mean... I mean, everybody, but particularly Francis Ford Coppola is culpable in that movie. <laughs> and I love it. I adore I, it. That movie gets a lot of love. I don't think. But it's... I mean, it's... But I love it as, like, a weird, stagey almost like 1930s throwback. It's almost a, an attempt mm. to recreate how they would have made that film in the 1930s, but with like a bit more fanciness yeah. around the edges. Oh, I saw this thing the other day. Uh, it's amazing. I mean, the craft of that movie, Bram Stoker's Dracula, oh, Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, is uh, actually Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Gary Oldman's Dracula, just to get it absolutely right. It is incredible. There was uh, someone, a Slippery um, Jack on um, Twitter, he's a really great, uh, Richard Wells, he's a really great follow. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, he was tweeting this excerpt from the making of Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Gary Oldman's Dracula. And it was, there's this bit where Jonathan Harker's writing home. Mm-hmm. And he's going, oh, Castle Dracula is not bodacious, dude. And, and <laughs> exact there's this, wording as well. Exact wording. And there's this, don't improv, Keanu. <laughs> and there's this train going across the letter. And you think, oh, that's superimposed in some way. But no, the letter was massive, 70, yes. 70 yeah. feet tall. And there was a model train going along it for, for real. I love that shit. In-camera effects. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that's amazing. But the film itself, I don't love. I, oh, you you're know, missing out. It's so overcranked. It it's is. so overcranked yeah, in really every way. Is. But you have uh, Hopkins' accent, uh, this weird Van Helsing thing he's doing, and then of course Gary Oldman's "I've crossed oceans of time." It's not, it's, mm. Oh no, what are you doing, guys? I, I, I just, I, yeah, I, I love it, but yeah. I can't recommend it as an accent. Certainly, okay. So that, but, that would be one of those English in quote mark accents that maybe English people don't appreciate so much. But how's Keanu in "Much Ado About Nothing"? I can't remember. He wasn't bad in "Much Ado About Nothing," you know. Okay. But then I'm not sure he was actually doing an accent. You think he was doing his own accent? Yeah, if okay. I remember correctly. All right. Maybe he thought it was much a dude about nothing. <laughs> ah. Look, Keanu knows some Shakespeare, all right? He he knows himself some Shakespeare. Someone, right. someone said uh, he played Hamlet, Hamlet he once. Did. And uh, someone said it was one of the top three Hamlets they'd ever seen in their lives. Yeah, I've heard other less kind reviews, but I choose to ignore oh, those and go I, with that one. I choose to go with that one. I presume then they didn't just add in parentheses. By the way, I've only seen two Hamlets. <laughs> that would have been bad. But Keanu, Keanu's great. Keanu is great. Yeah. I think, okay, let's give Don Cheadle a benefit of the doubt. Okay. And say Don Cheadle means that accent. Yeah. All right. Keanu, I think, is trying his best. Bless him. But at least he's trying. Mm. He's not like Kevin bloody Costner turning up (laughs) in Sherwood Forest and just not even giving it a good old... British go. But that did give us the best joke in Robin Hood Men in Tights. Yes, it did. Where Cariel was asked by Prince John, why do you think the people will follow you? And he says, because unlike some other Robin Hoods, I can speak with an English accent. <laughs> <laughs> and also, 
we've seen what happens when someone tries to do a Nottingham accent in a Robin Hood film and it goes vastly, vastly wrong. Of course, talking about Russell Crowe's infamous, awful accent. As somebody who grew up in Nottingham, I... Refuse. I mean, it's it's just, honest, I can't even... I don't even know what he was trying to do. Hints of Irish in there. Uh, It was probably closer to you guys than to me. Perhaps it is, you know, accurate within the time frame. I mean, it's like when people say that Shakespeare should really be performed almost in a sort of, you know, Bostonian accent because that's that's closer. But that's apparently closer to the way English was spoken in Shakespeare's time than modern, you know, RP is. So... I don't know. We haven't even talked about Dick Van Dyke, really, so I feel like we're... I don't think we should either. No, he gets a lot of kicking. Yeah, he does. Um, And I think, again, he meant well. But the the question kind of was about what do we, English people, British people, think about Mm. Americans doing accents? And I think that some are very, very good and some are not so good. Mm. And that's just a way of the, the world. And I mean, the same thing, you can go first. Oh, you can, you can say about English people going to America, like Hugh Laurie has a great one, people like that. But there are some going the other way that are terrible. I mean, we've heard some extraordinary Northern Irish accents on film over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's fair to say that it's a, actually a really, really difficult accent to do. And let's be honest, Brad Pitt didn't. So, um, <laughs> yes. And accents vary. Your accent is different from my accent. My accent is different from my sister, and I grew up in the same house as her. So you know, it's it's one of those things. Yeah, everyone yeah. everyone's accent, your your mileage may vary. So uh, you know, but I think it. Uh, I don't know. Mm, mm, yes, is yes my answer. Can I tell my um, dialogue coach story? I won't name any names. Okay. So I was on a on set of a film, and there was a dialogue coach who was teaching characters to speak in a Scottish brogue, Ooh. and um, heard me speaking. Was it Sean Connery? <laughs> after a few minutes, and went, "You're Scottish then," and I was like, "No, I'm Northern Irish." Mm-hmm. That explained a lot about the finished film to me. <laughs> <laughs> Because if you're the accent coach and you can't tell the difference between Irish and Scottish, nor yeah. Irish, we are a little bit similar. I mean, yeah. I'm from up near the Glens of Antrim and they actually yeah. historically have more links with Scotland nearly yeah. than the rest of Northern Ireland. But, there are, but even so. Sometimes though, even I've mistaken Northern Irish people for Scottish people when, mm-hmm. I, when I first hear them. When I first heard former Liverpool manager Brendan Rodgers, he talks in a very kind of methodical kind of way like that. Mm. And you think, well, maybe he could be a bit Scottish if you listen, really listen to the accent. Mm, we talk faster. And we, we, he, he's very, he slows it right down and slows it, get, and gets uh, every accent. And, and you just think, oh, maybe that's, that could be a little bit. I thought he was Scottish initially. Uh, who else? Mark Cousins, former host of Movie yep. Drum. Again, is someone like hey, very dark and you, you know he has a very hello. I'm Mark Cousins, and I could be Scottish if you were listening, right? Uh, so you know it's entirely it's entirely it's up, up, up there. But uh, anyway, ben. I was going to say it's it's the regional stuff that's much harder, right? You can do a sort of general generic plummy British accent, but if it's like. Anne Hathaway mm. trying to be Mancunian in one day. One day. Then oh. it gets a little bit tricky. Oh, and yeah. you yeah. kind of applaud right. them for attempting. Mm. But like, if you're going to go for a Yorkshire accent and you don't get it right. Yeah. It's... Josh Hartnett and blow dry. What's, what's that line? If you're going to shoot for the king, don't miss. You're going to come, come at the king, you best, you not, best miss. not miss. You best not miss. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That. Gosh. Yeah, he went, yeah, you got to come at the king, you best not miss. Get in the car. That's what he said. You've taken my Bostonian thing to heart, haven't you? I've made a huge mistake. Who knows? knows? Very quickly on the regional accents thing. For example, Frasier Mm -hmm. made the interesting, bold choice of having (laughs) Daphne Moon, Frasier's, what was she? Uh, Nurse to his father. Nurse to his father. Be Mancunian. Mm, In theory. And Jane leaves 
is English, who plays Daphne, yeah. and she got again within several postcodes, I would say, yeah. of of Manchester. But you have to you have to broaden it out for an American audience. But have you seen the episodes featuring her family? Her brothers, oh boy, not good. They I mean, were from a, an interesting town, ta- maybe like the Magic Faraway Tree, where like they they were there and then they were in a completely different place. Oh, and it's not. And good. it's yeah. And one of those people is Anthony the Pallia. Yeah. And he doesn't even try Mancun. He just goes full-blown shit cockney, which is really surprising <laughs> because he's really good at accents. He's a f- yeah. You know who I think the best people at are, are accents are? Australians. Because a number of times I will watch a TV show or a film and I go, oh, that was amazing. Oh, what a, what a great performance by that American actor. And I look, <laughs> him, I look them up and I go, oh, they're Australian. Mm. So Toby Leonard Moore, for example, from Daredevil and Billions. He's Australian. Yeah. That's the day uh, Chris Hemsworth. Did you know he's Australian? What? Did you know that? No. He's yeah. Asgardian. And here's this going to blow your mind. <laughs> Liam Hemsworth, also Australian. No, come on. What? He and Chris Hemsworth are from nowhere near the same place. Nowhere near the same place. Um, Luke Hemsworth, on the other hand, is from uh, East Grinstead. Huh. If you want to have your question read out in the Emperor podcast and treat it with the respect it deserves as Mrs. Pancakes found to her cause, you can get in touch with us via a number of methods. We're on Twitter as at Emperor Magazine. We're, use the hashtag Emperor Podcast or chances are we won't see it. What else? You can Facebook us. Ben, mm. check Facebook. I did check Facebook the other Any day. Any questions? Uh, there was one. I think I did send it to you. But did you? I think it was okay. then ignored. Really? <laughs> I don't think I saw it. Just tweet Resend us. It. Just tweet us. Just tweet us, but also Facebook us, uh, Empire Magazine. And you can email us as well, podcast at empireonline.com. Right, before we hear from this week's sponsors, the National Lottery Cinema Day, it is time to remind you that we are going on tour. Woo! Yes, it is very exciting slash terrifying uh, slash nerve wracking. But we're going on tour as of September 14th. Every show for the next six weeks after that will be a live show as in recorded live in front of a live studio audience and then edited down with all the stupid bits. Well, probably amplified. And um, we would love it if you would come and see us. Uh, Otherwise, it'll be our last tour. And uh, one of us in this room will be fired. I'm not saying who, but it'll be me. Right. So. (laughs) We are going to be at the London Podcast Festival at King's Place London, which is our spiritual home. We've done a number of live podcasts there and it is fantastic. Mm -hmm. We're going to be there on September 14th. That is Saturday, September 14th. Show starts at 9.30. We know that's late, but... Bedtime. Yeah, Helen will be asleep. She'll curl up on the table like a little dormouse. But, you know, you can throw things at her. It's totally fine. That's right, okay, isn't it? That's fine. So that's going to be fine. September 14th. You can get your tickets at kingsplace.co.uk. There's going to be a lot of fun. Then we're going to be up in Edinburgh. at the the Cameo in Edinburgh and we're going to be up there as part of the Edinburgh International Magazine Festival which is very, very exciting but uh, even if you're not part of that festival you can still come along and see us tickets are on sale right now via the Edinburgh International Magazine Festival or picturehouse.com or whatever that website is Um, I should have (laughs) figured it out beforehand but the Cameo website go there that's the 19th of September 26th of September we're going to be at City Screen in York which is very, very exciting. Again, tickets are available through the Picture House website for that. Do come and see us. October 3rd, we're going to be in Liverpool at Fact in Liverpool, which is very, very exciting. Again, tickets are available on the Picture House website. October 10th, we're going to be at Dukes at Comedia in Brighton. October 10th, again, tickets are available through the Picture House website. And then, last but not least, October 17th, we're going to be in Belfast, so we are. Hey! Uh, it's going to be very, very exciting. We're going to be there as part of Cinemagic's 30th anniversary celebrations. Uh, we could not be more excited 
I'm yeah, finally yeah. going to get back and I'm going to get a chance to try some kick-ass restaurants I haven't had a chance to go to. So that's going to oh, be Oh man, exciting. we've got to make a big long list. Big long list. McDonald's, Subway, no. Burger King, what, KFC. No, what? no. Taco Bell. Do they have a Taco Bell in Northern Ireland? Let's find out. Time to, Helen, do you want to go in with me on a franchise opportunity? Right now. Right now. Yeah. You're, you're in Brilliant. or you're out right now. <laughs> You've got to pony up the cash. I'll take care of the uh, the pizzazz. I uh, no, All right, great. I do not. Come and see Helen and I open up a Taco <laughs> Bell in Northern Ireland on October 18th, the day after the live podcast. Well, um, we're going to have a big, great, great, big old grand opening. Free tacos for everybody. That's, That's not my business how this model. Works. Oh, no. that sounds great. Sign me up. No. Do come and join us. Uh, um, we would love to see you there. And um, believe me, the banter will be a lot better than so what you've just experienced. We promise. Uh, right, now it is time for a totally not pre-recorded in any way, shape or form word from our sponsors. Did you know that the National Lottery is one of the greatest champions and supporters of the UK film industry? Well, it's true. Every year, the National Lottery uses a substantial amount of its proceeds to support good causes, including UK film production, from making new films to bringing fantastic movies to new audiences and community projects across the country. The BFI Film Academy is one such example of a good cause, with the National Lottery committing funds to train a new generation of filmmakers and bring innovative and independent films to the big screen. And this Sunday, the 25th of August, they are backing the National Lottery Cinema Day, which offers over 500,000 free tickets to people who play the Lotto Double Prize event tomorrow, that's the 24th, that's Saturday, either online or in store. And with Odeon, Picture House, Empire, the cinema chain, not us, Light, Merlin, and other participating independent cinemas across the UK taking part, you'll be able to see a movie absolutely free on a first-come, first-served basis, of course. And you can rest easy knowing that by doing so, you are supporting the UK film industry. So, a recap. Here's how it works. You buy a ticket for the Lotto Double Prize event tomorrow, 24th of August, Saturday. The National Lottery can then invest those proceeds in British film, and then you can go see a film for free on the 25th, courtesy of the National Lottery. And that, Simba, is the circle of life. Head to cinemaday.co.uk for more info. Wow, I really enjoyed doing that word from our sponsor spontaneously and live in the studio. It must have been as great for you guys as it was super for me. Super good. I'm excited super, by our sponsors. Super, super good. Who are? National, National Lottery Cinema, Cinema Day. Day. That's correct. Yay. Well done. There you go. You were, you were clearly paying attention. I had to think about it. Now we've heard from the National Lottery Cinema Day. It is time for this week's first guest. And this week's first guest is the director, Andre Overdahl, who is the director of... Films like Troll Hunter and The Yay. Autopsy of Jane Doe. In fact, when I say films like, I mean literally those, those films. films. Mm. Troll Hunter, The Autopsy of Jane Doe, and now this week's Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, which did really well when it opened at the US box office this weekend. I believe it opened at number one. Well done. I believe it deposed Hobbs and Shaw from atop the, you know, the top spot. Atop the top spot. Uh, anyway, uh, so he popped into the pod booth not more than an hour ago. In fact, Helen, the seat may still be warm. <sighs> That's what that is. <laughs> oh, wait, hang on. No, that's the seat I was in. I pissed oh, myself. man. Sorry, I forgot to, forgot to say. Anyway, <laughs> I get so excited in interview situations. Sometimes you a little pee comes worst. out. The worst. Is it wrong? It's, not, it's a perfectly natural human response. 
I don't think it is. You probably need to see somebody about that or get something to, I think some kind of nappy. It helps the interviewee. It helps them know that they're doing a good job. Anyway. Depending on how much pee comes. Oh. Okay. So anyway, this is Andre. That was a scary story to tell in the dark. (laughs) It's not even dark, Chris. (laughs) It's It's very brightly lit in here. It's always dark. Uh, Here's Andre Overdahl. We talked about that movie. And we got into what I thought was a fairly interesting conversation about what it's like to pitch for a big movie like this and how much preparation goes into it and what it's like and if you're not maybe as accomplished a pitcher as some people it's kind of unfair isn't it that some people maybe get gigs that they don't mm. necessarily warrant just because they're good in the room but uh, as you'll hear Andre Overdahl doesn't consider himself to be good in the room so he got the movie it's a good movie and uh, here we are talking about that and also a little bit about his plans to make the Stephen King adaptation The Long Walk enjoy delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the director of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark he's just put his headphones on because he wants to make sure I get his name right. <laughs> Andre Overdahl, which is uh, your your actual pronunciation. You've just told me that's because I was getting it all wrong. Yeah, no, it's Welcome good. I mean, in Norway, we would say Overdahl, but that's... See, that's where I was going. Yeah. I was going to go with that. <laughs> Unbelievable. Overdahl. Overdahl. Okay, is that close? Oh, I'm yeah. so sorry. I'm so sorry. We're off to a bad start. But how are you, sir? Are you good? Yeah, excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks for coming in. No, my pleasure. Yeah, I was going to say you might be jet-lagged, but you just flew in from Oslo. Yeah, yeah. So not too bad. Not too bad at all. That's a two-hour flight. <laughs> no time difference is not a killer. That, that yeah, sort of thing. One hour, but that's fine. One hour time difference. That's, yeah. that's the thing. That'll fuck you up. <laughs> yeah. The one hour time difference. But congratulations on the success of the movie. Thank you. Uh, in yeah. the States. Uh, yeah. How's, how's it feel? No, it feels great. It's such a relief to have it out and uh-huh. see the audience react to it and see all the love the film is getting. Because uh-huh. uh, I watched it last night and I, I, I'm still getting over some of the bits. In it. It's a very intense film. Oh, great. Intense, yeah. cause, um, we, we spoke before about uh, for the magazine about this movie and about how obviously it's based on a succession of kind of folk horror tales or folklore horror folklore tales by Alvin Schwartz uh, these these scary stories on the dark compendiums which I don't know if you knew them growing up necessarily but they're they're aimed at a younger audience and this movie is really intense I don't <laughs> want to give things away but there's, there's one sequence in particular I was like whoa <laughs> this is PG-13 what's going on <laughs> no that's great no I mean we always wanted to make a PG-13 film that kind of stretched the boundaries uh-huh so that was our target. I mean, in America, we wanted to make sure that it was almost an R, but not quite. So that it really feels scary. I mean, I wanted to make a, a scary and fun film for a wide audience that yeah. can range from this could be your first like big horror movie experience. And it should also work for more seasoned horror fans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost like a... Like a gateway horror movie. Ideally, that would be <laughs> yeah. fantastic, yeah. 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 Get people hooked to horror films and they move on to the, <laughs> the, yeah. the harder yeah. stuff down the line. Um, and where did it begin for you? Because your last movie was The Autopsy of Jane Doe, which is a fantastic film, but um, maybe a movie that didn't get as much exposure as this film. So were you looking intentionally to do something that would have a wider audience after that film? I mean, yeah, I was, uh, yeah, I, I, I love the fact that this was to have a big release worldwide yeah. because that's uh, absolutely, uh, you know, you want, I love movies that are for an audience, for a wide audience. And I would love to have a widest possible audience for my movies. So I try to create movies that have a broader audience. Mm-hmm. And uh, the autopsy of Jane Doe didn't get a big wide release. But it, in a way it has kind of, it sneaks into into the public sphere slowly yeah. but surely. 
I keep still seeing tweets about it online that are enthusiastic. Have you seen this film? Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah like, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's really part of the. You know, yeah. even now, three years afterwards, it's mm. still there. And is it a movie? Did that lead directly to to this movie? Because I, I know Guillermo is a voracious consumer of <laughs> of films. Yeah, I'm imagining at some point he watched the autopsy of Jane Doe. I mean, yeah, I'm sure you're on his radar anyway. You know, what was what was Troll Hunter, but. Yeah, <laughs> uh, was, was it uh, was it that movie that that broached that connection between between the two of you? Yeah, it was. I mean, he um, he tweeted about the movie some really well chosen words of how much he liked it, <laughs> and uh, we had this little Twitter conversation about our common projects that had or our different projects that had a common title. My movie Troll yes. Hunter, and he has a TV yes. children's TV show called Troll Hunters. Yes, so we had a little fun conversation there on Twitter, and then six months later, I suddenly received this script, and he had already kind of almost pre-approved me as the director of it, and uh, they said, "Do you want to read this script to the other producers on the project?" And then I fell in love with it. It was such a throwback to the Amblin movies I grew up with, but still with a modern attitude, and the fact that it was a horror movie. Um, made it into a, a you know the perfect movie for me to get to direct. <laughs> so that's an interesting scenario. So the script just turns up, written presumably in red ink. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that smudges whenever you you rub yeah. it. <laughs> the script keeps writing itself as it goes yeah. along. <laughs> that would have been a fun thing. <laughs> it would have been, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, what was your first conversation with with Guillermo properly about this movie? Uh, I was. I remember we met in a hotel near his home in LA. And it was this round table with all the producers and everybody. And I was supposed to kind of pitch the movie. And I got so scared from pitching it to him because I was, you know, he's... It's Guillermo uh, del Toro. He's Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> yeah. He hadn't won the Academy Award then, but he was still a kill Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> he's still on uh, a pedestal for, yeah, you know, yeah. for horror fans. I especially. love all his yeah. movies. And yeah. then he uh, he arrived and he was so kind and so welcome. And the first thing he does is just hug me. And it's like, <laughs> okay, this is easier. But uh, I kind of made a very bad pitch. But still, they he said, you know, I still like him. <laughs> so they still had belief that I could probably direct a movie. So. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of those interesting things. I want to dig into that a little bit, this idea that uh, of pitching, because I'm sure a lot of people listening to this maybe want to make movies, and maybe the idea, the, the concept of pitching is oh. terrifying to them. The idea that you have to be good in the room. Yeah, in order to get your ideas across, in order to be selected to make the movie, that really shouldn't have any bearing on your ability to actually direct a movie. And yet, you hear it said so often. You know that you have to be good with your pitch, and you just said that you weren't. <laughs> you yeah, weren't no, good I, in the I, room. that was a terrible pitch. <laughs> but I think in the end, I had did a second pitch and with the studio and everybody there, yeah. and then that went well. Yeah, um, I always feel terrible walking out of a pitch meeting. Uh-huh. I always feel like I failed it completely. I also did the same thing on the long walk now, where I went in to pitch for a New Line Cinema for the next movie, uh-huh. and I felt I didn't get it. I lost the whole job. And I was like calling my agents. It went to hell, and they were like, "They saying that you got the job. They loved your pitch, <laughs> <laughs> but it was." Um, and you're like, "No, no, no, no. Trust yeah. me, it was terrible. It was terrible. No, no, yeah. Andre, they, they, you've got the job. <laughs> they just sent me the con. No, no, it was yeah. terrible. It was terrible. <laughs> Day so, one, you're actually shooting the movie. Yeah. No, it was awful. It was awful." It was awful. Awful. I'm not here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Any day now, they realize it was a yeah. bad pitch. But oh. is, is that a part of the directing skill set that you develop over time, that idea? Yeah, of- I mean, I've, in the end now, I pitched so many times. Also, I started doing commercials. So I did 10 years of commercials. And that kind of is a very similar process where you have to put together a, a presentation of how the show, even though it's a 30-second thing, you have to do it in a specific way. Mm. 
And that's a good learning experience for going into movie making because you are going to have to present. You are in a, it's a competitive situation. In a way, it's all they have to judge you on is really how you present your ideas. You have to have clear-cut ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think in the end, I believe that you can actually have not the best, most amazing, awesome pitch in the world, but if you have good ideas as a director, you'll kind of get away with it, mm. even if you're not a show person standing there and kind of... You know. <laughs> roll up, roll up, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, exactly, yeah. which I'm not. Yeah. So it's that way, it's always, always terrifying for me to go into studios and pitching, mm -hmm. because I felt like I had to be a you know somebody who could just stand there and sing and dance, <laughs> and I certainly wasn't. Yeah. But um, so what is a pitch for you? What, do you bring in mood boards? Do you bring in examples yeah. of what you're going to aim for in terms of tone and, and style? Yeah, sometimes you have like a 50, 60, 70 page document on oh. a TV screen that you put together with visuals and with going through the whole movie. Wow. Like, okay, this is the design of everything from the costumes to the uh, the roads that is going to happen on or the house or how everything's going to, the tone and the mood and even down to the music, as, uh, you can play music in the room to show this is going to be the feel of it. And a trailer, for example, you cut together a trailer based on other movies, like a spec trailer. Uh -huh. That should be like two, three minutes and present kind of what this vision is going to be, which can be quite tricky, but it's possible. Yeah. And basically really only have 20 minutes to do it. So I can spend months preparing this and all you have, as you walk in there, you have 20 precise minutes that can balloon to 45 minutes, but rarely more. Because if they have, you have a question and answer session with the studio or with the producers or yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. afterwards. But it will be in that bracket. And uh, it, that's kind of like terrifying that you only have those few minutes. It sounds exhausting. Yeah, that, that is exhausting. Yeah, it's kind of scare anybody. Wow. Unless you're Christopher Nolan or somebody. Is, will, yeah, I want to make this movie. And they go, yes, how much do you yeah. want? <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's interesting. So... Um, did you cut together a trailer for this for this pitch for scary stories? Yeah. yeah. What, what sort of movies did you were you incorporated into that? Um, oh God, I mean, I think there were pieces. I mean, I think there were pieces of Poltergeist and Conjuring, and uh, wonder if it was even a Back to the Future clip or something. Really? But, I mean, it is that yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, got to find the balance between things. It's mm -hmm. really, those kind of spec reels are really tough to do because they'll never represent exactly what you want to do. So you're always going to be somewhat vague. So then you get to gig, and uh, working with Guillermo, I know that he likes to shepherd a lot of younger talent. Uh, you know, he's producing Scott Cooper this year as well with, with Antlers. Over the years, he's produced Don't Be Afraid of the Dark and, and various other films as well. Um, he's a busy man. Yeah, very busy. <laughs> I, I don't believe, I don't know how he, his day counts 24 hours. <laughs> I think he has a time turner or, or yeah. some sort of weird shit going on. But uh, what was it like working with him as a producer in, in terms of shaping this vision for you know for, for this movie I mean basically the first thing he said to me I remember we were in Cannes at the dinner and he said I'm gonna be when we were presenting the movie to the world the first time and uh, he said you're gonna make your own movie now don't you know don't try to make a Del Toro movie uh, which I of course I would never be able to do that's his own unique world so he's, he totally gave me free range to make my own movie, but it's he, you know, he worked on the script with the, the Hegeman brothers. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. also his own idea that mm -hmm. the whole thing is based on. So his footprint is all over this movie, of course, but I still had to make it in my way. And he let me do that, but he was so helpful in the process of, you know, we were reworking the script a little bit before shooting, like you always do. And 
it was so fun to sit in the basically what became a writer's room with him, the other producers and the writers mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and myself and discussing everything and to learn from his the way his mind works when it comes to all the amazing creativity and ideas bubbling up. And uh, that compared to the overview of knowing what a film should be from a bird's perspective, be able to combine those two extremes. It mm-hmm. was really amazing to watch. And during production, he would be so preoccupied with the monsters, obviously, and the creatures, and he would be so helpful. He would actually, when we were preparing the movie in Toronto, which where we shot it, he would fly to Los Angeles to be with the uh, creators of the creatures and work on them with them down to the specific details of colors and skin and whatever was needed, any advice he could give. And then he would fly back and he would be with me and work a little bit on the script again. And he was very hands-on. But during the shooting, I was pretty much left to my own devices and shot it the way I wanted. And they would just protect my shooting days and make sure I had enough time. And and when we suddenly lost half a day or something because of something, they would like find some way of giving us the extra half day later. And then uh, in post-process, he was there to help We we spent you know 10 weeks or something cutting the director's cut Mm. and then he would watch it and okay it's a little bit long so here is my suggestion for how to cut it down and it was wonderful to see how uh, his mind of how to sharpen a movie in the editing room could benefit how we could benefit from that amazing understanding of filmmaking that he has Mm. we can't really talk about the uh, specifics of this movie which is (laughs) which is a shame this isn't a spoiler special sadly uh, (laughs) because there's a lot of stuff I want to get into with you but there's uh Great use of sound in this movie. Like I great. love playing with sound. It's the most one of the most fun aspects yeah. of filmmaking. That's what I wanted to talk about because there, there are moments when, as a viewer, you were waiting for the scare. And as a director, you must know that, obviously. And you, there's, a, there's a rhythm to scares the same way there's a rhythm to jokes. I'm fascinated by the process of that, like timing scares and also playing with sound. So knowing when to amp up the spookiness of sound, maybe uh, outside noises, wind, that sort of thing, or when to drop it out completely and when to wrong foot the viewer as well. Is that something that's, that's going through your mind all the time? Oh, yeah, constantly. I mean, I kind of know where, how it should be. and But then we also test a lot of different versions of it. Like there is a scene with a scarecrow and a mm-hmm. character walking through a big um, cornfield. And initially we had, we tried with music throughout the whole scene, but then we tried with silence. And the moment we, we kind of knew that silence was the thing. But then in the post process, we were like, okay, wait a second. There is so much beautiful wind in the scene because it was wind when we were shooting it. Mm. So let's just layer the wind in. And then we started using the wind and having it come, using it in surround sound. So it comes from the front and a whoosh goes to the back of the theater in the certain shots. And I will give, you know, if we do that precisely, we'll give chills to the audience and you feel the movement. And, you know, all that kind of stuff is so much fun to deal with. That's amazing. Yeah. And uh, there's so many stories to choose from as well. How did you narrow down the ones that you you wanted to go for? I mean, I wasn't actually part of that process. Uh-huh. That was um, Guillermo and Kevin and Dan Hageman. They kind of had an American Idol kind of process where they dwindled it down to 10 win- winners <laughs> for the finale. <laughs> and then they kind of uh, had to come down to five, six in the end. Uh-huh. And then they weaved that through the story of uh, how these kids find a, you know, the book and then figure out the myth of Sarah Bellows and all that stuff. But I've, that's something I immediately realized as I was reading the script is you can feel how cleverly they weaved everything together into one big cohesive story. Mm. 
because I could, even though I hadn't at the time when I read the script, I hadn't read the short stories. Okay. Yet, okay. Because I didn't know them from before. Yeah. Your first yeah. question. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. didn't actually know them until I after I read the script. They were never published in Norway. Uh, but I could still feel that, oh, there is a, that's where the story goes. That's where the story comes in. It was kind of obvious. It's, there is an anthology aspect to this movie that is hidden underneath everything. Yeah, yeah. but it's very clever the way it's actually you know, meshed in with the actual narrative of the movie. Because yeah. it would have been so easy to do this movie as an anthology. Uh, yeah. Someone just recounting, you know, like... Um, uh, John Houseman at the beginning of The Fog yeah. just sitting on a beach and just recounting scary stories to people it would have yeah. been so easy to go down that route yeah. but to make it all intertwined that's that's a really really lovely lovely trick once you started reading this, the books themselves the Alfred Schwartz books did you did you discover anything you thought oh well, can we try and get this in there in some way can we even hint at various different stories or was it all relatively set in stone the thing is, when I first received the script, there was another story there that was called High Beams Okay. that was part of the script, which I really thought, I think that's such a great urban myth and it's such a wonderful little story. And which one's that? Which, uh, it's basically a woman driving a car and there is another car behind her that just keeps blinking at uh-huh. her like, yes. well, and she doesn't understand what the hell it is. But then in the end, you realize there is somebody in her yes. back seat and they're trying to warn her. And it's like, that was in the script and it was such a scary scene, but we changed some aspects of a, some characters character relationships uh-huh, uh-huh. and suddenly that scene became a casualty oh okay so yeah. I'll do my best at sneaking it into the sequel <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good point uh, it, will there be a sequel yeah the movie's done really well in the states I mean it kind of it does come down to that if a film is successful economically yeah. there is you know then there is this possible to make a sequel uh-huh. uh, so there is talks of doing a sequel yeah I mean it, it lends itself doesn't it even more scary mm. stories to tell in the yeah, dark the second book is called <laughs> more <laughs> well, stories <laughs> scarier stories to tell in the dark <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the possibilities are almost endless Andre and uh, you mentioned there the long walk and uh, I'm really excited about this this will be your next movie this is something that you're were you now on on that yeah, yeah. Are you, we're, in, are you in pre-production or are you? Uh, are yeah, we're in very early prep. I mean, I had to finish prep, Scary yeah. Stories, which is basically just finished a month ago, yeah. and then now press and everything, and the <laughs> so release. So. Stuff like this getting in the way, yeah. and then, <laughs> then you make which a is a pleasure. Walk. It's all fun, <laughs> nicely saved. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we uh, so September October we're going to start gearing up the production. Okay fantastic so in case people don't know what that is uh, I've talked about it in the podcast before but uh, it's a Stephen King book but it's a Richard Bachman book it's one of the Bachman books and uh, it's a movie if I'm honest I thought I would never see I didn't think I'd ever see this adapted uh, to the big screen uh, because it is so dark and it is so dystopian and it's uh, a story of a uh, a competition, shall we say, in which uh, an, a group of boys are forced to walk for a long, long time and, and there are severe repercussions for yes. lagging behind, shall we say. <laughs> uh, what was it about this book that made you want to direct it? I mean, it is the fact that it's so human. There, mm. We're just following these kids walking and talking about who they are and their lives and their dreams and hopes. And then you also try to slowly understand why the hell did you agree to go on this walk mm. where you are... 99% sure to die mm. it's one person out of 100 is going to live Yeah, and it's just who yeah. uh, and uh, that alone is just such a huge mystery psychological mystery and then it is dreadful I mean the whole film is just so filled with dread you you know you're walking with these boys at gunshot uh, you know um, guns pointed at them if they lag behind 4 miles per hour they will get a warning and 2 and 3 warnings and then mm-hmm. they get shot mm-hmm. So it is the suspense. Again, it's like 
the balance between suspense and and just the humanity is really interesting. It's one of those uh, stories, and I'm sure we'll talk about it <laughs> in great depth whenever you come in to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I hope you'll invite years me, yeah. time. Oh, you're, you're open invitation, sir. Uh, but it's one of those stories where a bit like The Running Man in that it's alarmingly prescient, which is also in the in the Batman books collection, in that it feels like King was, he's kind of aiming it right now in, yeah. in a weird way. He's predicted right now. You, you, you can imagine if we're just a push in the right direction that... Mm-hmm. Maybe America could go in the in the in a way in a direction where something like the Long Walk isn't completely out of the question, or where a TV company might broadcast something like The Running Man. It was that, again something that 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 attracted you to it. Yeah, and actually, you know, he wrote that book when it was eighteen nineteen. So it's it was crazy, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing that he could would be that mature. Yeah, but also it's a time period that Scary Stories is set in. Uh, scary yeah. Stories is set in nineteen sixty eight. That seems to have been a time that uh, our times reflect very yeah. well right now. Yeah, you Both. have a lot of Nixon, yeah. for example, a lot of yes. uh, footage of Nixon in uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, and Vietnam looms large in yeah. the background of that. Well, I can't, I cannot wait to see what you do with that that film. Uh, it's amazing. Was it something that you had your eye on uh, in a way? Because I think Frank Darabont had the rights to it for a while, but it never cracked the nut. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, he would have made a wonderful movie, I'm sure. I mean, who I love all his films, so I don't know what happened there. But uh, yeah, eventually the rights became available again, and I guess New Line grabbed them. And at that time, they were. I've been discussing with with them for a while, and then I went and did Scary Stories, and then suddenly it was still available. And they talk. We talked to them, and then wow, okay, they liked my <laughs> take on it. Apparently, was it the same thing? Big pitch, big TV screens, yep. cutting together a trailer. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. We'll talk about that in detail next time you're back yeah. here. Uh, Andre, it's been an absolute pleasure. I gotta let you go. Uh, yeah. Off to direct the long walk, and then who knows? Scarier stories to tell in the dark. Hopefully. We shall see. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Andre Overdahl. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Lee. Thank you. Okay, so that was Andre Overdahl, and now it is time to talk about this week's movie news. Uh, and so quiet, though. There's not been a lot happening. No. I think no. we should just skip it and just go straight to the reviews yeah. section. Mm-hmm. guess so. Uh, oh, so. wait, I mean, come on. We should probably, like, I don't know, find something. I guess there's... Oh, my God! Bond 25 title was announced. And it Tell is me it's the, Bond 25. It's the none more Bondian title... No Time to Die, which, if you think about it, is basically the exact same meaning as Die Another Day. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's a very Bond title, though, Mm. isn't it? For a Bond title. Yeah, Doctor No, Time to Die Another Day. Yeah. Yeah, it's, are it's, you one of these people who's written a lot into this? The fact that there's the word no in this, because it's heavily rumoured, isn't oh it? Oh, God, no. That Rami Malek is playing Doctor No. I hadn't it? heard that rumour, and now I'm depressed about the punnage in the title, and I wish you hadn't told me. Um, no, time to die. It just needs more, yeah, it needs more punctuation, really, doesn't it? It's a time to kill, but no time to die. I don't know. I keep putting it with other similarly named films for some yeah. reason in my head. I, mean, I think this is maybe a statement of kind of, of assurance for the fans. It's meant to reassure them that some kind of continuity, some kind of classic bondness yeah. is going on. Because I feel like there was a there was a lot of consternation from a certain type of person about the whole he isn't 007 at this point, he's retired, uh, especially about the, the stories that Lashana Lynch will be 007. So maybe this is a little bit of a no, this is a this is a classic bond movie, don't worry, kind of an announcement. But also that this may be Daniel Craig's last movie, but it won't be Bond's last movie, and that mm, maybe they'll they'll go down the recasting route and just carry on as they've done before. Yeah, yeah, it feels to me a little bit like someone's just 
pressed the Bond title random generator and yeah. come up with this. But it's not, I, you know, I saw some people getting quite head up about the title. Some people quite liked it. I'm kind of, I'm fine with it. I'm glad we can call it something other than Bond 25. Although I still think they're cowards for not just calling it Bond 25. <laughs> I like the typeface for this. Hmm. It looks nice, doesn't it? It looks like the Motown logo. Somebody told me on Twitter earlier today that this is the typeface used on an Honor Blackman book. Oh, it was Mark McAvoy. Hello, Mark. Honor Blackman's Book of Self-Defence uses the same typeface or a very similar one. It's a very Mm. popular typeface. I think Mm. the professionals used it as well. The A-team used it as uh, also. So clearly it's it's going around. They're just, you know, all these big action heroes are just sharing this font. Uh, And why not? It's a good font. It's a good font. Good font. (laughs) But this is how little we know about this movie that we're now (laughs) reduced to discussing the title and the font. Um, I will say that uh, Ollie Gibbs, formerly of this parish, uh, worked on that kind of reveal with Daniel Craig walking along and reveal of the title and stuff so that's pretty cool that's pretty cool yeah well done Ollie Gibbs yeah good work Ollie yeah that was kind of it news wise right it was just the no there was oh wait there was one other massive massive story The Matrix The Matrix oh my god The Matrix is back Lana Wachowski's back Keanu Reeves is back Carrie Ann Moss is back The Matrix 4 is happening The Matrix rebooted surely that's what they're calling it right Joey Panzer get the fuck out (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, but there's still time. We've, we've still got time to find out who else might return. But I think, um, wasn't he dead? Anyway, um, it's funny that they're calling yeah, it Matrix. I think dead and uh, that's true. stopped mm. him. It's funny that they're calling it Matrix 4, isn't it, when there wasn't a 2 or a 3? It's like Indiana Jones going straight to 5. But this is my, this three, is my thing. Know? I mean, the night, that the, the night that the news of this broke, it may have been superseded by another piece of movie news. Oh, I'm just it? guessing there was something mm. else, but... When I did see people talking about the Matrix 4 news, they were losing their shit. They were going, oh my God, this is amazing. Keanu Reeves is back. Carrie Ann Moss is back. Fishburne isn't back, but who but knows there may be what a will young happen with that. Morpheus, a younger, yeah. is the rumour, yeah. How's that going to work? But whether he's passed on or whether it just wasn't an opportunity for him, or maybe he's just gone, look, guys, I'm, I'm too old now for this shit. I'm happy being in John Wick where other mm. people do my fighting for me. I'm kind of stood surrounded yeah. by nice birds yeah, and wearing a comfortable coat. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not doing that again. It's hell doing the uh, the regime for these movies. But, you know, they've got Jeff Darrow back on board, who's a you know big part of the, the look of these movies. It wouldn't surprise me at all if Jad Stahelski comes back on to kind of help with the stunts and, mm. the, and the second unit. And uh, as indeed he's, he's announced this week that he's going to fulfill a similar function on Birds of Prey or the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn. He's coming back in to oversee along with Kathy Yan. Mm-hmm. How's that going to work? Um, action sequences for that movie. So Chad Stahelski maybe, it wouldn't surprise me if he gets announced for this at some point. Anyway, so Keanu's back. Carrie-Anne Moss is back. Boom. Lana Wachowski is back. Yeah. Jeff Darrow is back. All these people are back and it's fantastic. People were losing shit about it on Twitter but I was just exactly the same as Helen. I was going... Do you not remember Matrix Revolutions and Matrix Reloaded, guys? I mean, they weren't that great. No. So there is a fourth part of a Keanu Reeves-led action franchise that I am burning to see. It's John Wick Chapter (laughs) 4. Matrix 4, I'm very much on the fence about. I'm I'm very hopeful that in the more than 15 years since Reloaded and Revolutions, lessons have been learned about how much, you know, wanky shit people are willing to put up with. Um, <laughs> I'm really hopeful uh, and, and that this will be more like the original Matrix and less like uh, anything else in the Matrix verse. I feel like the Matrix sequels are almost at that Star Wars prequels level where 
enough time has passed that people can accept that they were not the thing that everyone hoped and dreamed that they would be. Mm. But people... also people can go back and pick the things that actually there, there were things of merit to them, especially some of the action in um, in Reloaded is great. Mm-hmm. Um, that Yeah, maybe there's a little bit more distance now that you can enjoy the stuff that there is to enjoy in them without holding on to the fact that they're ever going to hold a candle to the first one. I think with this new one... One thing I'm really intrigued and excited about is that so Lana Wachowski is co-writing this, but also on board is David Mitchell, yeah. the author of Cloud Atlas uh, and The Bone Clocks, which are amazing books. And obviously the Wachowskis with Tom Tickwood did the um, Cloud Atlas film. Cloud Atlas film is so great. So and good. I'm intrigued to see what that sort of writing collaboration is going to bring, especially like the Wachowskis. I know it's well, it's just Lana on board at the moment, nothing about Lily being involved, mm. but they are fascinating filmmakers. And whether you like everything they've done since The Matrix, they've always done things that are really, really interesting and that follow these interesting narrative threads about, I don't know, the transference of souls and about rebirth and about the kind of difference between reality and internal reality Mm. and the world around you that has obviously then been mirrored in a really interesting way in their personal lives. And now that plugging back into the Matrix, I didn't mean to say plugging back into the Matrix, but it works, Um, (laughs) taking that back into the world of the Matrix with who kind of Lana is as a filmmaker these days, I think is going to be fascinating. That's what gets me excited. Yeah, about I'm this. I'm really hopeful. I really am. I'm just I worry about characters like the architect coming back for no fucking reason. But I'm really well, hopeful. Hopefully not. Ergo, concordantly, vis a vis. Hopefully I'm not. I'm really hopeful that it will be. What's great. really upsetting is that amazing Will Ferrell MTV sketch <laughs> has been scrubbed from the internet. I think you can't has find it, it no. anywhere. It was when I was like 13, 14, or whatever. That was honestly the funniest thing I've ever seen. Uh, me and my mates at school, it would absolutely kill us. We'd watch it in IT lessons and just like be absolutely pissing ourselves. And it's really sad. We tried to watch it in the office the other day and it just seems to have gone. It's vanished. Yeah. Will Farrell, if you're listening, please send a copy to Ben. Mm-hmm. Thank yes. you. Yes. Upload it to Funny or Die. Mm. We'll uh, do that. Yeah, I, I get all that. I do get all that. I do have questions. I do have worries. Why is Lily not directing this, for example, with Lana? Uh, what will that mean for the dynamic? It would be something like if, I think actually it is happening, I think Joel Cohen is directing a movie mm. without Ethan. So what happens? What happens if Joe Russo directs a movie without Anthony Russo? What, what happens madness if, is this? Yeah, well, you know, they just seem to be like a hive mind as, mm. as filmmakers. So that's going to be a bit of a worry. Uh, why is there no Fishburne? Why is there no Joey Pants? Listen, I'm happier with a Wachowski, even one Wachowski being on board and in control of mm. a Matrix sequel than I was with a Matrix reboot, which had been mooted with Sack Penn uh, in charge of the script. Not a huge Sack Penn fan, uh, I think it's fair to say. So I'm, I'm, I'm slightly happier with this. Yeah. But we'll see what happens. But yeah, genuinely, if this affects John Wick Chapter 4 in any way, shape or form, <laughs> there will be blood. Well, I think yeah, I think there's pretty much blood guaranteed. Oh, good, excellent. Yeah, yeah. I love blood. Speaking of blood, we should mention Ben Wheatley's TV show, uh, which is a zombie satire called Generation Z. Z, fine, Jesus. Which is uh, basically about a whole load of old, rich boomers turning into zombies and trying to literally eat their children as well as destroying their future and indeed the planet. 
So that's cool. I don't, I don't see how that's relevant. No, days. it doesn't seem satirical at all. No. Yeah, there's no sort of generational divide in this country that could be really nicely transposed across to a zombie yeah. narrative. No. Not just this country. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 The, the whole, the whole, the whole world's burning. Yeah, literally. Yeah. Mm. Um, so that's, that's a lot fun. Of fun. Anyway, but that sounds great, and we love him. And speaking of people we love, Andrew Scott, lately of Fleabag, the aforementioned, and of course Sherlock before that. Let's not get you started on how much you like his Moriarty. I love his Moriarty. I've already um, told you that. Yeah, no. Is actually going to be in His Dark Materials season two. I don't Everyone know is in this show. I know. Everyone's in the show, and that makes it very exciting. It is very exciting. We haven't even seen season one yet, but we no. know he's going to be in it. Um, I don't know if it's a spoiler to say who he is. I feel I like it, it is. it kind of is. Yeah, anyway, we, he's we in it. We have not alluded to it hard in the story. Um, don't give it away, Chris. No, but, I mean, this is a story with some religious overtones. Anyway, but there's um, he's going to be in it. Uh, there's a picture of him and Lin-Manuel Miranda, who, of course, plays Lee Scoresby up on... Instagram, mm-hmm. I think, and no, Twitter, in fact. And um, I'm really excited to see this show and I cannot physically wait for season one. So I'm really hopeful that that makes, is, is a good time for season two. You can't physically wait. What are you, what are you doing? Are you I'm like, like just, just in a constant state of like, Yeah, just in a constant state of like vibration waiting for season one. That's all, good. All the images from that show so far just make me feel so relieved mm-hmm. that this seems to be the version of that story that we always wanted to see on screen. Pantalaimon looks so cute. Yeah. With his little eyes and his little, you know, what is he? He's a little fluffy white sort of... Is, he is that a Minsk? Mink cat? Mink? Mink pole rat? Um, I don't know. One of those things. It's cute. Yeah. <laughs> that's it on... I think that's it on movie news. I don't mm-hmm. think there was anything else that was big. Uh, yeah. Annabelle Wallace has joined James Wan's horror movie, which is a secret horror movie that nobody knows what it's about. I hope James Wan does. Mm-hmm. Uh, Annabelle Wallace, who, of course, was in... The uh, Mummy. But she was also in... Annabelle. She was in the first Annabelle movie. So she's got previous with James Wan and his Conjuring First. We don't know that this is part of the Conjuring First, but uh, still, it it may well be. You never know. Mm -hmm. She's joined that. David Oyelowo has joined the cast of George Clooney's Netflix movie, Good Morning Midnight, which is about a cataclysmic event that hits the Earth and two characters, an astronaut and an astronomer who are hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from each other. And uh, they're trying to live through whatever it is that happens. I don't want to give away too much. Let's see what else is happening. Michael Michael Rucker Rucker. will be Mary Poppins Yole in Fast and Furious 9, which should be interesting. (laughs) I I believe he's actually playing someone called Buddy. Oh. I mean, seeing as everything flies in those films, I'm Mm. sure Michael Rucker will too. Yeah, that's interesting. (laughs) Yes. I think that's pretty much it. Is there anything else? Okay. Uh, Yeah, there's some trailers, but that's basically it. Time now for this week's second Wait a second! What? There was the whole Sony Marvel news, Spider-Man. Oh, no. The terror, the horror. Just when we thought one thing in this godforsaken world was okay, just when we thought we had one beautiful, clear-eyed, full-hearted thing, it's all gone a bit to shit. (laughs) Mr. Stark, we don't feel so good. (laughs) We don't feel so good. I just... You know, literally the rainforest is burning. Literally the planet is dying. Literally fascists are on the streets. But we thought at least Marvel now had everybody back in house. You know, at least Marvel has Blade and Fantastic Four and X-Men and all the characters they already had. Like, everything was fine. Everything was fine. Everything was fine. And then what happened? And then the one good thing we had, the deal between Sony and Marvel. Okay, we have a couple of other good things. But anyway, the one beautiful, 
cherry on the top. one thing getting me the, out of bed in the morning. Of the gatto of our lives. The Sony Marvel deal that allowed them to share a Spider-Man, that allowed them joint custody of Tom Holland himself, mm. as I understand it. Disney get him at the weekends. Yeah, seems to be, and some holidays, you know, it's a, it's a shared thing. It's a shared, um, yeah. The point is, they're now looking like they cannot come to terms to share him in future. So that might be the last time we've seen Spider-Man in an Avengers film. It might be a break between the two universes once again. Poor Aunt May, she just got with Happy. Ugh. I mean, she can do better. That's fine. Yeah. I'm not worried about that. Yeah, he was. He was. Although I actually do. He was love punching. Him. Yeah, he was. He was doing well. No disrespect to John Favreau. He was doing well. But yeah, this is a complex issue. Very a complex. Stuff to, we, developing we're, issue. We're not aware of everything. This is one of those stories that by the time you listen to this podcast, it may have been resolved and Disney and Sony may have come to an understanding and they may have made an announcement and it may make fools of us for the next five, ten minutes that we're going to be discussing this. Mm. There's potential fuel to the fire that this is idea, uh, this is just brinkmanship. Yes, maybe. Um, A negotiating tactic. Yeah, absolutely. And that uh, depending on what you want to hear, depending on who you want to believe, that this may be about Disney wanting a bigger slice of the spider pie mm-hmm. and Tony going, no, no, GTFO. Mm-hmm. Uh, WTF? You, yeah. We thought you were a FOS, a friend of Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Turns out you were an FOS. Foe, foe of, of Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Still and not confusing. Sucks. <laughs> I know, I probably needed to work on that. But that's probably it because you've, you've seen some stories where it's been alleged that Disney have said, look, we helped put Spider-Man back in the Spider-Map by, you know, giving you Kevin Feige and the MCU and making mm-hmm. Spider-Man relevant again and, and teaching you how to make these movies good again. So we'd like more money, please. Mm-hmm. We'd like a bigger share of the cut. And Sony have said, no, we're good. Besides now, we know how to make these movies and we don't need you. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that's a mistake on their part. And ultimately, what this comes down to is two massive corporations fighting over the beans and fighting mm-hmm. over the, the money and not really considering the fans in the fallout and not really considering the story in the fallout. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm not going to over, overuse dramatic words, but this is the worst thing that's ever happened yeah. in the history mm-hmm. of mankind. Yeah, I yeah. don't want to overplay it, but this is a disaster on, yeah. a, on a scale of unimaginable. You know, it is. It, it just feels bad. It feels like we've gone, we've, we've had this glorious thing where Spider-Man's part of the MCU. And I realise... Some people may not care about that stuff. They may be grown-ups and they don't care about these silly movies for children. But we kind of do. And I love the fact that Spider-Man was part of the MCU and they were clearly positioning him to be a huge part of the MCU going forward. Or were they? I mean, maybe, you know, they didn't announce anything in stage four, which we assumed at the time was because that's Sony's job, really. They tend to announce the Spider-Movies. That's what I thought, yeah. Do you remember I had that dream? You did have that dream. Where they hadn't... Uh, not only did they announce a Spider-Man for next year, but they'd actually be filming it in secret. Mm. And because I was <laughs> my dreams, this is what I do in my dreams. People are like, oh, this is, I dream about Marvel release schedules. I go, <laughs> hang on, but if they're releasing a movie in May and they're releasing a movie in November, that means there's a whole big, you know, there's just a huge space there to release a Spider-Man movie in. What if they've done it in secret? <sighs> and then I wake up. And they still might. We don't know. But, yeah, this 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 does feel like a blow, and and it does feel like they were positioning him for more, and it does feel like uh, he has his whole life ahead of him. You know, he's just a young guy. Also, it wasn't like Homecoming and Far From Home were like, oh, it just happens to be set in the MCU, and there's a few moments of crossover. He was very much embedded mm. in the fabric of everything but else going on at the on. time. Actually, like 
the story of Far From Home does leave him in a position where if, if there's ever going to be a time when this happens, this is actually story-wise not a terrible one. He's still underage, so it would make sense that the Avengers wouldn't call him except mm. in dire, dire need. Yeah. Like, he turned up to them in Infinity War rather than them going to him. I know that Tony called him in Civil War, but that's just Tony. There's there's an argument that they would try to leave him alone if possible. I don't think it's a good one, but I'm just saying it exists. <laughs> so he could be a friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man while they do other things in other neighbourhoods. And... If I was looking for a silver lining, and I'm really looking for a civil, silver lining, because you guys, seriously, the world is terrible. Maybe this opens the path for another nerdy teenager with superpowers from the New York area mm-hmm. to come up and get her shot Maybe at the from MCU. Jersey City? Maybe from Jersey City. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe somebody whose name is Kamala. Yeah. I, no, there's no silver lining to be had from this, no, I, I think, uh, ultimately. Uh, because apart from anything else... Spider-Man and Kamala Khan are great together. Mm. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, I don't know, you guys. I got a bad feeling about this. I hope that they resolve their differences. I hope that they find uh, a, a way to meet in the middle. Regards, money. I hope the Pacific is as blue as my dreams. <laughs> I really I do. Hope. I really do. Shawshank at least had a good ending. It had a happy ending. Uh, spoiler alert, by the way, for Shawshank Redemption, in case you haven't seen this. 25 years old this year. Are you um, willing to... Yeah, crawl through a tunnel of literal shit. I would crawl through a river of shit and mm-hmm. uh, come out clean on the other side. That's mm-hmm. what I. That's what I will do in order to to see them reconcile their differences. But you know, ultimately, I don't think I, I, I'm a pessimist in, in this regard. I think what's happened is that Sony. Tom Rothman is now at the studio, whereas he wasn't when the, for this deal was brokered, and there are no official statements here. But there is a feeling that Rothman and Sony feel that they have learned enough from mm. Kevin Feige about how to make these movies. But I think the, what, one of the things that made these movies, these two, these two movies, very, very special, and of course the other appearances of Spider-Man in the MCU, is exactly that. It was in the MCU. And I think if you suddenly tear him out of the, the fabric of that construct, it's just going to feel weird. In the way that Venom felt weird, actually, it felt old-fashioned in many, many ways, but yeah. it, that was one of the ways it actually felt kind of old-fashioned. And and this is... I mean, you can have those two play together, but, I mean, I, for one, don't care because I hate Venom as a Spider-Man villain. I hate him. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I, I don't want to... I don't right want to... Don't sit in that fence too much. Yeah, I try to be balanced, but I'm not very good at it. You know, I don't like him with Spider-Man. I really don't. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know how those two characters, as they are currently conceived, work in the same film. Never mind getting into Morbius and all this other stuff that they have planned. I don't know how those fit together. Now, Sony Animation did a yep. superb job with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. That is an incredible film. If you tell me that Phil Lord and Chris Miller are going to consult with Kevin Feige, was that something? Yep. But uh, you, and possibly you know, even the best Spider-Man movie. Possibly. I don't actually is think it's. Be made? I don't think there's much of a counter argument. Actually, I think that's a fun, just an incredible film. I mean, maybe if they did some kind of live-action Spider-Verse thing, it would be a way of Sony doing their own live-action Tom Holland movie that also feels slightly removed from the MCU stuff and could then, if he was reintegrated into the universe later down the line, if the deal gets resolved, who mm. who knows? I think it's just, um, like you said, the critical success and the sort of Oscar wins of Spider-Verse. Venom, for all its many, many flaws, made... Shit loads Shit of, money. of money. I think that's, that's, that's a key point here. 
Not only might they look at the movies that Kevin Feige has produced for them, Homecoming and, and Far From Home, and gone, okay, we've kind of got this. We can kind of do what they're doing. That's that's totally fine. We'll do that. And we don't need all that MCU stuff. It will be hilarious if, you know, he does try and re- recall his mentor. You know, the guy with the goatee and the glasses, but he can't ever say his name because... He'll be hit with a, what a they, lawsuit. What they might do is <laughs> um, what they might do is suddenly start talking about Uncle Ben. They might start talking about That's Uncle Ben a little bit happening. more, and they might just not mention any Avengers ever at any point. Do you remember that time you saved? Oh, nope, don't remember any of that stuff. What are you talking about? That's weird. Uh, but I also think that that Venom is a huge part of this because Venom is not a good movie, but it made loads and loads and loads of money. And so mm. they might think, well, it doesn't really matter that much, does it? But yeah. it does long term. You can have a one-off hit mm-hmm. with practically anything. But it does matter if you're going to keep people around. It really does. Yeah, I think so. What's interesting as well in some of the reports, obviously, like Chris said, nothing confirmed. But some of the reports that have come out this week have said that Kevin Feige actually did a f- bit of work behind the scenes on Venom, uncredited. So even to kind of get it to the point where that was. I don't think there's a single movie that's made with the, the Marvel logo on it that hasn't hit his desk at some point. At least, you know, even if it's just, hey, Kevin, we're not too sure what's happening with this movie. You know, we don't really know what we're doing. What, you know, what do you think we should do? I don't know how much work he did on Venom, to be honest. But mm-hmm. uh, it's, uh, it's really dismaying, to be honest. Yeah. I think it's about chasing the bottom line and, and screw the people who actually lo- lo- love these movies and love these characters. And, and I'll feel a little bit sorry for, for Tom Holland if his mm-hmm. last movie is Peter Parker is outside the MCU. And, you know, mm. who knows? Who knows? Yeah. It, you know, the thing is, they're, they're saying, oh, we've learned what we need to learn from, from Marvel. We, don't, you know, we know how to make a good Spider-Man movie, but that flies against all the evidence. Uh, like they made two bad, amazing Spider-Man movies. Uh, Spider-Man Three was bad. The, mo- yeah. the Spider-Man movies without Marvel's direct involvement. Again, we're at that tipping point where there are more bad ones than there are good ones. And Venom is not a good movie, so the evidence is not there that they they'll they'll, they'll be able to that, that Spider-Man's in safe hands. Yeah, mm. let's hope though, um, because you know he's a lovely man and we want the best for him. We do, and uh, I hope they get a move on quickly as well because you know Tom Holland still looks about seventeen or eighteen, but. Uh, one day he'll wake up, he'll look 45. That's I mean, how, that's how yeah, these, in, in these things work. 25 years, but sure. No, tomorrow. Really? Yeah. That sounds like a curse. Once Why I'm, are you cursing Tom Holland? Because I'm going to swap him out with another Tom Holland and not tell anyone. Oh, I see. And then keep the real Tom Holland and make Spider-Man 3 privately. Okay, Chris, as your lawyer, that's kidnapping? It's not kidnapping. It's kidnapping. He's a man. It's abduction. It's man-napping. That's also a crime. The age is not the determining factor. Shouldn't we wear in your crime book? You can't. Can I you? can. Your big book of crime. I don't have it with me, but I absolutely can. Well, okay. I'm not going to take your word for it. I am going to man-nap Tom Holland no. and force him Chris, to make no. Spider-Man 3. Okay, if there are any police listening, if you can just stop Chris, I'd appreciate it. Thanks so much. Anyway, speaking of Kevin Feige, uh, our <laughs> Avengers Endgame spoiler special, it's only the 47th one we've done, uh, is finally going to be up, oh, well, hopefully by the time you listen to this. That's uh, the one with Kevin Feige. That's the one with Kevin Feige. That's the one we recorded uh, in front of a small audience of loyal Empire subscribers and uh, lovely people they are too. I mean, I didn't speak to them or I insisted that they didn't make eye contact, but I'm sure they were very, very nice. And uh, that's going to that's be up. That's, that's going to be up now. That's going to be up now. So that's going to be exciting. So do listen to that uh, as well. And our Quentin Tarantino 
Lead, Once Upon a Time at Hollywood Spoiler Special is also up for you to listen to right now. So that is also very exciting. Hurrah! Hurrah for us. Well done, us. Last but not least this week in the news section is uh, the sad passing of Peter Fonda, the legendary Peter Fonda who died last week at the age of 79. And a very, very sad loss. He was on the Empire podcast a few years ago. He came in, I don't even remember what he was in town to promote or whether he just happened to be in. I think he was doing something at the BFI and uh, he had time in his schedule, so he came in and he spoke to uh, Phil Dissemlian and Nick Dissemlian. But hopefully we'll, we'll try and put it back up there uh, for you guys to listen to because he was uh, a lot of fun. I met him very, very briefly when he came in and he had his sunglasses on and seemed to be a man who was very, very content with life. And so, of course, Peter Fonda, son of Henry Fonda, brother of Jane Fonda, of course, mm-hmm. uh, co-writer and star of Easy Rider. Mm-hmm. Uh, very much a countercultural icon yeah. as well. There wasn't a great number of classic movies after that, but he did make some really, really interesting things. And so if you've never seen Race with the Devil, for example, which is a really creepy movie about uh, two couples who stumble upon a Satanist cult and then are chased through uh, the American Deep South, I think it is, if mm-hmm. I recall correctly, by these Satanists, that's a really creepy film. Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry... Uh, he directed a film called The Hard Hand, a Western called The Hard Hand, mm. which is really great as well. He was nominated for an Oscar in 1997 for Uli's Gold. Yeah. And he, uh, The Limey in 1999. Oh yeah, I'd forgotten about yeah, that. Yeah, he's wow. great in The Limey, uh, opposite Terrence Stamp doing a proper good Cockney accent in it. So Small roles circle. as well sometimes in Escape from L.A., Yes. He's good in that. Okay. And, uh, well, I mean, I'm not saying the film was... Okay. Classic, no, but no, he was good. Fair. And um, wasn't it... Was it Cannonball Run? I think he was in Cannonball Run as a head, the head of the bikers. That being okay. the joke of Easy Rider. Ah, uh, yes, 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 yes. Which um, my course. friends watched basically on a loop in university, so I still remember that one. Yes, but it was uh, Captain America that he was best known for. Yeah. Not that one. Not that one. And uh, an Easy Rider, and that was, I think, something that he... Um, it, you know, some people, some actors get a little bit annoyed by being typecast, but uh, he seemed to be okay with it all through all through his, his mm. life and career, and seemed to still play into it. And he still very much was someone who embraced uh, hippie, for want of a better word, uh, ideals. And uh, I don't think he had the best relationship with his dad. Interestingly enough, he said that uh, Uli and Uli's gold mm. was a very cold, taciturn guy. Was in some way based upon his dad. Uh, but they, I think they, they, they had a relationship that thawed out later in life. Yeah, and, I think so. But he was a fantastic, a fantastic actor. With some, uh, uh, if you haven't seen the likes of Easy Rider and Race of the Devil and the, yeah. the movies I've mentioned before, do check him out. And uh, we're very, very sad indeed to hear of his passing, the great Peter Fonda, who died this week at the age of seventy-nine. Okay, time now for this week's second guest, and uh, delighted to have this guy back on the Empire Podcast. I always say that. I always say I'm delighted to have people back on the Empire Podcast. Sometimes it's true. It is <laughs> sometimes, true. sometimes it's true. <laughs> Helen, I'm delighted to have you back in the Apple Podcast. That wasn't true. <sighs> See, that's that's acting. Ben, mm. hi. Delighted to have you back in the Apple Podcast. Oh, thanks. See that, Helen. You See that? Yeah. That was a lie. I know. That was Chris. a lie. Well <laughs> done. That's correct. <laughs> Uh, anyway, it's Jerry Butler, and hey. uh, we're always always excited to have Jerry Butler back on the Empire Podcast. And uh, last time he was in to talk about Hunter Killer, uh, he's just a lot of fun to talk to. Is old Jerry, old Jerry, and um, this time he's in to talk about Angel Has Fallen, which is the third in the Mike Banning trilogy. This time Mike Banning has fallen. 
No. Yeah, he's fallen. He's fallen over and he can't get up. And uh, it's a really, really sad tale of a man whose knee packs in. Actually, it's not too far away from what the movie's about because it does address the idea of aging as an action hero and the psychological effect of being in all these firefights and rescuing all these presidents from all these terrorists and what that might do to you over the years. So it's a sequel to Olympus Has Fallen and London Has Fallen. And Jerry came into the pod booth uh, the other week to have a good old natter about that. Nick Nolte. And uh, we end with a story. Well, I'll let him tell it. Here we are. Jerry Butler. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast by the star of Angel Has Fallen and, of course, London Has Fallen and Olympus Has Fallen, Mr. Jared Butler. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm good. How are you doing? Just to like remind you of the names of the films. I was thinking in. I have done other movies, not Has Fallen, <laughs> but it just makes it sound like it's. Oh, he does. It's has Sparta fallen. Has Fallen. <laughs> <laughs> the Phantom Has Fallen. The Ugly Truth Has Fallen. <laughs> uh, how are things? You've just, you've just finished a big big old movie with uh, Rick Roman Raw, who Wall, who's the director of this film as well. So yeah, he, he is Rick okay? Roman Raw, though. Yeah. He's, 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 is that his ethos? He just, he just well, his movies I feel are very raw. Um, that's that's what I experienced when I watched his other movies in you know, and Shot Caller especially, yep. and that's when I approached him about about Angel Has Fallen, and and I've heard that description used a lot with our movies, really raw compared yeah. to, to to the other stripped yeah, down and, and absolutely yeah, and that was a big thing from him. He's like, if we're going to do this, then let's really do it. What, yeah. what is it like being this guy? You know, not yeah. just when a terrorist attack happens, but what are the rigors of the job? How hard is it on his body, on his mind? What does he have to cover? What does he have to, you know, not tell his family? And yeah, how does yeah, that? Yeah. And, 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 and then how can that be played with and manipulated in, in a way that nobody could have imagined um, on a global stage in the end, just from from what how he's been kind of misbehaving yeah. in a way. Which is unusual <laughs> to say that from, because it's all for the right reasons. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, so I just finished that movie with, with Rick, but, but. I, I have said that myself, Rick Roman Raw. <laughs> it's just alliteration. It's just, it's just no, nice. no, I love it. It's good to lean into. Rick Roman Raw. 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 Or Rick Roman Raw. By the end Rick. of this interview, I swear to God, I will pronounce his name correctly. <laughs> I, that's that's my challenge to myself. I'm kind of hoping you don't, because I'm, I'm liking the versions we're coming up with. Rick Roman Raw. <laughs> it's like Life of Brian, isn't it? Well, Lee Swadwick. It's, it's a bit like that. Um, but I think mean, you're right. It is. This is a very different uh, version of Mike Banning. This is a a less quiptastic Mike Banning. There's no let's play a game of fuck off, you go first. There's nothing like that. There's nothing like the banter that you had with with Aaron Eckhart in the last one. This uh-huh. is very, very straight down the line, very, mm-hmm. very serious, which I yeah. th- which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's still listen, there's still a lot of humor and 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 funny moments in the movie, especially mm-hmm. my relationship with my father who's gone off grid, Nick Nolte. Yeah. Um, but for sure a lot more of it is played for truth. Like trying to get a joke past Rick. He's like, no, it's not truthful. I'm like, I know. And I would describe them as, but they're delicious moments. We still need our delicious moments. So so we have a we have a few of them in there, but there's just something about going on that that ride in, in, in a different way yeah. that felt really, really involved and relentless and 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 you're really inside this guy's mind. And again, not just how do I save the president, but like how how do I save myself? How do yeah. I save my family? How do I save the president? And and how do I get through these other challenges that were already happening before any of this yeah. came along, you know? And and um, so it, it it felt like a, a, a super visceral kind of ride for that reason. How much of that came from from your own personal experiences in a way? Because not the last time we were on this podcast, but I think when we were talking about Geostorm, you had just had your motorbike accident. Yeah. 
And certainly Mike Banning in this movie is a man who has gone through some rigours in life. He's got some injuries, he's got some migraines. And, you know, you're, you've been doing action movies now for, for a while and yeah. had accidents in, in real life as well. So it was part of you going, look, I'm getting older, my body's not working necessarily as well as it used to. So that's maybe take that and put it into the Mike Banning character. Yes, exactly. That's, that's um, see, I told you before, Andy, you're always, you're always <laughs> giving me really fresh insight. But no, that's absolutely the truth. One, um, truthfully, what I was experiencing, life imitating art, but and, and also from a joke point of view. I mean, it was a joke on set, like yeah. how, because when I arrived between motorcycle accidents, I had a surgery with complications and went badly. And, and I I arrived not really in, in the best shape. And that's not the first time that's happened with, with, with movies, but this one was particularly hard. And yet, of all the movies I've made, it was the one telling that story of a guy who yeah. really, I shouldn't have been making a movie. And really, Mike <laughs> Banning shouldn't be working. And I love that setup at the beginning when the doctor's like, you're a mess. You have this, you have this, you have this. Anything happens to you and you're screwed. Yeah. And then you go, now bring on the biggest challenge of his life where he gets beaten, <laughs> hit by cars, truck crashes, shot, you know. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. But he's so Mike- so that was a real conversation you'd had in real life oh. with your doctor who said, do not do Angel Has Fallen Journey. Yeah. <laughs> I, I beseech thee, don't do it. Take yeah. six months off. It, basically, yeah. Oh, by the way, if I, if I could have got out of it, I probably, I probably would. <laughs> and I think it did start four months late. Oh, hang on, aren't you the, a producer? Like, uh, can't you I, just I, say, I, yeah, just put it back a few no, months, guys? No, sadly not. It you was, can't um, find yourself. What's, no. what's going on? But it's like, but it's funny because it, 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 it's so often the case where you, you, you're like, no, I can't, I can't, you know, and you're dragged as I once had it described to me, you're dragged kicking and screaming into the next phase of your happiness, you know? But it's like, oh, actually, I forgot. I love this. I love doing this. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. It's rough and it's tough, but it's it also, it's where it's it's where my sweet spot is in yeah. a lot of ways, you know? So did this movie change a lot uh, over the years and, and it's in, in various iterations? Because I, I think whenever it was first announced, there was talk that it was going to be an Air Force One-based movie. And did yeah. you re- did you did you remember that there was already an Air Force One? <laughs> did that no. change or what happened there? No, that's just Millennium jumping the gun as uh-huh. they love to do. You know, hey, we have yeah. a movie, we're announcing it, and you go, but we hate that script. You know, we didn't we <laughs> we or we didn't love the script, yeah. and and it was like, I'm not just going to make this movie just to make this movie because I'm. I, I, I'm very sensitive to having to go around the world. I've made many movies that haven't worked and having to go around the world and, and talk about them when you can tell people don't like them. <laughs> then you go, well, let's be brave and try and do something fresh and original. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, but it took a few, it, there was a, a bunch of uh, different ideas that came before the, the fugitive idea came up. And then even the fugitive idea had to be seriously honed once Rick got involved um, to... to to again ground it and make it this much more intimate and personal and emotional and bring mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. whereas before the, the characters were more kind of cartoonish and co- the father was much more cartoonish and I, I think with Rick coming on board Nick Nolte and Nick Nolte coming on board there was so much more pathos in, in those scenes that they're actually truly touching and powerful and to me if you can do that in, a, in an action movie then you're so much more in on the ride Mm. You know when you're when you really feel like you're you're in there with with the characters and going through in a more holistic way what what they're experiencing with the family and you know and and then what's going on inside etc not just the external 
global threat, which is on our <laughs> Save London, save the White House. <laughs> save yourself. <laughs> save yourself. Much better. Uh, By the way, you're so right. That'll be the next one. Well, you, Banning's like, you know, what, what am I doing? <laughs> they, even, they blamed me the last time after all that good work I'd done. Why am I risking this? I'm out. <laughs> Did you look at other cities? Did you look at Blackpool has fallen? Did you look at... You've been <laughs> so dying to say Wigan, that one, haven't you? Wigan has fallen. <laughs> um, no, and I couldn't take that anymore, even as a joke. What next? Tokyo has fallen. Ha, ha, ha. What next? Paris has fallen. Sydney, the moon, Mars has fallen. Well, now you're on to something. <laughs> Wait a second. Right, by the way, by the, the way we're going now, it won't be long before Mars has fallen. It's like, oh, we're there. Oh, now it's done. Yeah, we ruined that one too. We ruined that, that one too. There you go. All good. Um, it wasn't looking too good in the beginning, but it looks way worse now. <laughs> it only took us five years and we fucked the whole thing up. Unbelievable. Uh, uh, what was your uh, Nick Nolte experience like? And were you worried that once you got into a scene with him, with your voice and his voice, that you might have to reinforce the speakers in the, <laughs> in the cinema? Because there's a lot of bass there. There's a lot, yeah. There's, there's a, a lot of bass. Yeah. His voice is... I've never known a voice with that timber that that that, that that's that, amazing yeah that expresses so much emotion in one word he can say so many things you know and just it it, it was it's inspiring to work with somebody like that it brings your game up but also it, sometimes you just got to take your hat off and go wow well that's why you're nick nolte um <laughs> and he was a beautiful beautiful man which i was worried about because he's nick nolte you know yeah, so yeah, you hear yeah. a story you know, he's a little crazy yeah, occasionally, uh, yeah and and he is a little crazy but in the night for me anyway from what i experienced in the the nicest and sweetest of ways just a big heart time for everybody never complained we asked him to do a lot of crazy we asked him and morgan freeman to do a lot of craziness in this movie uh, a lot of action and they ate it up and loved it. And he had so many great stories that he was more than happy to tell. But just time f- for everybody. And then he performs. And you got like the scene in the cabin. I remember thinking, Christ, if this was any other movie, this was like some small drama. And that was a- that would be an Oscar nominated. So that would be the scene that they would show at the Oscars. <laughs> because he's so good in that. He's so good in the role, but he's so good in that, in that, um, in that scene particularly. You know, yeah. it's... Was he uh, top of the list? Was it a Nick Nolte type in the script? Was it? Yeah, it it was. Yeah, yeah. So we Amazing. we 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 got lucky because listen, that's happened where you go, oh, let's get Sam Neil. No, unavailable. <laughs> let's get no pass. Let's get. And the next minute, you're like, let's get. Uh, uh, he's dead. He's been dead for five years. Oh, okay, let's get. <laughs> Just keep going. Try Does anyway. this guy ever work? Doesn't matter. Look, <laughs> just scale him in. <laughs> He's not even an actor. It's good. Just it's just it's just a waiter at the hotel, Jerry. What are you What are you doing? Honestly, um, but you're you're. Have you ever heard? Can the, the, have I told you this, the the five stages of an actor's career? No. This just reminded me of that. Um, the first one is who's Jerry Butler. And then the second one is, get me Jerry Butler on the phone. And then the third one is, get me a cheaper Jerry Butler. (laughs) And then the next one is, get me a younger Jerry Butler. (laughs) And then stage five is, who's Jerry Butler? (laughs) So that... (laughs) Okay, yeah, yeah. So sometimes at the Nick Nolte level, if Nick says no, you start going to that guy where you go, who's that? No, he used to be, he used to be big. He was a a big name. (laughs) 
Never heard of them. Oh my God. Is that something you've experienced yourself? What, what, what level are we at now with uh, with you? Are we at uh, still get me Jerry Butler or we get me a cheaper Jerry Butler? Where, where are we now? I jumped. <laughs> I went from one to four. Who's Jerry Butler to get me a younger Jerry Butler? <laughs> <laughs> I said when you came in, because you're, you're you're sporting a long hair, you've got the, the beard going on here at the moment. I was wondering if that was the, the big Nick O'Brien look coming back because I really want a Den of Thieves too. What's happening with that? Um, it's on the cards. In fact, I know they just closed the the, the deal. So, um, um, Christian, who's the writer director, is now he, he's all about immersing himself in that world. He's like, I can't write in until I'm there in the heart of Europe in Marseille for the summer with my wife, <laughs> writing about the Diamond Exchange and but it meeting has these to be gangsters. It and, has to be. Uh, oh no! But he <laughs> and by the way, he does. Like nobody yeah. does research like this man. And, um, but he also likes to do it in the most beautiful parts of the world. It's like, so that's, it's, yeah, it's, um, it's um, Southern Europe, you know, Marseille, kind of French connection feel. Um, Nick O'Brien goes, uh-huh. goes to Europe. That's, that's our, so he's writing that right now. So I don't think it's going to be next week, but it's, it should be mm-hmm. soon. But that's not why I'm. That's not why I'm. I'm, I'm growing this. <laughs> that's funny. You say because when we, we we saw a photo of Nick Nolte like two weeks before our movie started, and the, uh-huh. all the the news was about look at the mess of this guy. He looks so disheveled, and he's like, but we're like, because he's supposed to be disheveled in our movie. But we're wondering, is that for us? I mean, I'm hoping that's for us, <laughs> or is he just? Because you know, we've all seen that mugshot, haven't we? We've all seen yes. that famous one. You know, yeah, but. But yeah. that shot about a year ago, it wasn't far off that much. <laughs> but that's who he was, you know, preparing this guy who's gone off grid, who's, you know, shaggy, overgrown, doesn't yeah. look after himself. And Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So what is next for you? We, I, I took time off this year in between these two movies. And 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 it's funny when you take time off, You, I, I never felt so popular in my life. Suddenly I'm going, well, I have like 15 Give me Jerry Butler. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Give me Jerry Butler on the phone because he keeps saying no. Um at a time when I wanted, never wanted to work less, uh-huh. it was the time when I had more options than ever. But what I really wanted to do was keep my slate clean and, and, and have no commitments. Not that I'm not going to work, but just that I don't want to know that I have to work by a certain time. I just finished Greenland now. I've got to start this press tour. So when I'm finished that, I like the idea of going clear horizon, uh-huh. you know, and, open, and just chill. Open diary. Yeah. Nothing in the diary apart from maybe stay off a motorbike. Is that maybe stay off the motorbike? <laughs> stay away exactly. from that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Get Are up, you? read a book, read the newspaper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Read a book, go back to bed. <laughs> I'm really excited. I don't think you could do that. It'll be no, wake no, up no, nine a.m. paragliding, exactly. twelve a.m. stick my face in a fan <laughs> just because. No, <laughs> three p.m. Uh. dangle my hand over hungry Doberman's mouth. <laughs> that sort of thing. That's a juice, Jerry. Yeah, That's maybe, what keeps yeah. you alive, right? I, I know. I know. Sadly. <laughs> Sadly, it is. Yeah. All right. I finished work. Talking about that, I finished work at 5 a.m. one morning. This is just two weeks ago, and we were working at a Navy base in Georgia. And and there was a bunch of soldiers there, and they had the, the German Shepherd dogs, you know, the drug dogs and the ter- anti-terrorist dogs. And at 5 in the morning, they said, will you put on this dog seat? You want to play with their dog? So I had to put on this thing <laughs> and have this dog attack me for no other reason than because they wanted me to do it. And I didn't want to look like, like I was a coward. So I'm like, yeah, let me do that. And the next minute, and I'm exhausted. It was such a long day. Now I've got this German shepherd pulling on my arm, and I'm like, ah, great, this is fun. This is how long do I have to do this for? Before. So it still looks impressive. <laughs> That's amazing. That reminds me, I've got to let you go in a, uh, in a second, but it reminds me, you told me once, I interviewed you for the magazine, I asked you what the strangest thing you'd ever seen. 
you told me a couple of things. You told me once you'd seen a car crash from the air. An airplane, yeah. As you were coming into land. Yes. You told me something, but this was for the magazine, so I wanted to out there on a podcast. You told me that you'd once seen two dogs having sex, but one dog had somehow got stuck inside the other dog. Whoa. But with its leg. <laughs> they were having sex. So, so this is in Bulgaria. This is 20 years ago. <laughs> I was about to go to dinner with Francis Delatour, Owen Teal, like it's a oh lot, Alan Bates. Oh my and God. We were making the Cherry Orchard. Michael Kokianis was directing. And we're in this hotel. And one of the actors, Andrew Howard, great uh-huh. Welsh actor, comes running and goes, You've got to come and see this. And we run outside, and there's two stray dogs standing back to back. And one dog had its back leg stuck inside the other dog. <laughs> and to this day, I've never been able to work out how. Like what was going, and they knew they were like, "All right, you guys, you guys, okay, this is not, this is a bit embarrassing." And they're looking at us like, "Okay," and oh, and dude. yeah, and I've never, it's it's a visual that I can't really get out of my head. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing it with us. Oh, my pleasure. That's I love sort to of, share those. That's the sort of Jerry Butler content we want. Yes. Get me Jerry Butler. That's what I say when you come into town because he's got he's got tales of dogs getting stuck inside other dogs. Yeah. If you want intellectual conversation, Benedict Cumberbatch. But if you want dirty <laughs> stories about dogs fucking with their legs, Jerry Butler's your man. Cumberbatch only has tales about dogs just you know looking at other dogs. That's it. Is that it? That's it. That's so boring. Boring stuff. Yeah. yeah. I might annoy him. Screw that guy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Jerry Butler, it's been a pleasure as always. Thanks, yeah, man. my man. You Cheers. too. Thank you. Okay, so that was Gerard Butler. Gerard Butler, not Jerry. Gerard Butler. And uh, we'll talk about Angel Has Fallen in a little bit because there's quite a few films out this week. Mm. Where shall we start? Should we get a tombola out? I've got a tombola upstairs. Do it. It's too much hassle. Okay, just, uh, just pretend I'm one. doing a tombola. And stop. Okay, I'm put my hand in. And rummaging around. What is it? Scary stories to tell in the dark. That's weird. I thought it was pain and glory, but okay. <laughs> scary stories to tell in the dark. Ben. Yeah, this is the one with the scary Wait stories. Wait a second. Oh, oh, he's turned the lights, turned the lights out. Ben, tell me about scary stories to tell in the dark. Ooh. Have you heard about the man who reviewed scary stories to tell in the dark on the Empire podcast? <gasps> oh, have you heard what happened to him? No, what happened it was to awful. him? awful. Oh, no. Yeah. Hey, anyway, you should totally review them. The year, 1968. <gasps> the scariest the, year. The stories, scary. <gasps> oh. America. Nixon's re-election no. is approaching. Nixon, the most terrifying thing in the movie, possibly in fairness. Stella is a horror nerd who spends her time in her bedroom writing her own scary stories, Ooh. sometimes in the dark, sometimes not. <gasps> when her writing she- must be all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's got like terrible handwriting. Is, is that a bee? Is that a bee? <laughs> When she and some friends are chased into a spooky house in the neighborhood, no, they read a scary book. No, don't they read from the book. They pick up the scary book that nobody else would choose to read. And when they read, it unleashes. Is it a Toby Young book? <laughs> Is it called the Necronomicon? It basically should be the don't open the book, don't read this mm. book, book of the dead, book of the bad things, book of stories that will come true. And okay. kill you. And kill you. I'll cool. put the lights back on. Thanks. Um, So they read the book and all the stories start coming true and the stories are writing themselves and as they're writing themselves, people are dying who are teenagers. Get the fuck out of here. Wait, isn't this a bit Goosebumps? It's like Goosebumps, 
but like it kind of earns its 15 rating the interesting thing mm-hmm. about this is that it's sort of pg-13 rated horror chris you and i saw this last night and we were yes. having a bit of a chat on the way across about thank how you for holding my hand by the way that's okay i, I mean it wasn't really I consensual that but was um, you holding my hand wasn't it <gasps> uh-oh so we were having a conversation on the way across to the screening about how PG-13 horror is interesting because it makes you think, oh, this is probably going to be a bit watered down. But then you think of something like Drag Me to Hell, mm-hmm. which is exactly the film it's trying to be. It's not holding anything back. It's just that there's nothing specifically in there that you can point to and go, oh, this is gory. They avoid gore, but it doesn't mean it avoids scares. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a 15 over here, and I think it kind of earns that. It's it's not gory, but it is pretty scary and intense and it's got a real nice sort of Halloween vibe to it. I, it kind of feels like a bit of a shame that it's not being released around Halloween because it's got a nice spookiness to it that yeah. feels kind of appropriate for that sort of release time. Yeah. The thing it felt like most to me was something like one of the Buffy Halloween episodes Ooh, where it's kind of sold. spooky and playful and fun, but there's some imagery in there. Obviously, this is based on a famous American book. I don't know if it was as big a thing over here. Um, I, don't think, I don't think it was. A guy called Alvin Schwartz did the series of scary stories to tell in the dark uh, with all these like horrific illustrations and things um, that was aimed at younger audiences. So it's a sort of introduction to horror. And the film kind of does that too. Uh, for me, it played a little bit like um, if you've seen Stranger Things and you liked the sort of scariness of that, but you're not quite ready for it yet, this is the kind of middle ground. Okay. You've got some really nice performances from the kids. It like, follows, it has a bit of that Stranger Things vibe because it's got the retro setting and it follows mainly a group of teens who are trying to sort of deal with all this stuff while the adults are focused on other things like Nixon. Right. Uh, so the lead is Zoe Margaret Coletti and she's really charming. She's a great way into the film. There are some really, really sort of surprisingly gruey monster designs. Is that playing with kind of monsters and spookiness rather than all-out gore? Okay. But I think it did that really well. Uh, it has a little bit of that Guillermo del Toro stamp. He's here as a producer, but um, it also feels like a set apart from what he would normally do. And it has this nice through line of the sort of the real monster being racism and America at large. So yeah, this is fun. This is the very definition for me of a three stars as a recommendation film. It has a few flaws to it that mean it just doesn't quite punch up to sort of four stars. For me, it takes a little while to get going. And um, there are all these smaller stories through the film, but the the central story that ties it all together, yeah, takes a while to get going and doesn't it seems to meander a little bit and there are some logic lapses where you think, why aren't they just telling somebody about all these things that are happening? Tell an adult. So it has a few flaws, but the good stuff in it, I thought, was actually really good. Mm. Go and see it. If you like horror stuff, um, yeah, give it a watch. Um, Yeah, I I liked it. I I liked it. I thought it was very good, very effective. It's got some incredibly intense sequences. Uh, There is one intense sequence, the Harold sequence. Mm -hmm. I won't say too much about it other than that. Do I actually turned to you afterwards and went, this this is a PG-13? Really? Whoa. Um, very expertly marshaled jump scares, maybe a bit too many of them, but otherwise I thought that uh, Overdahl did a really good job of of conjuring up a very, very creepy and insidious atmosphere in this movie. And uh, this is weird because I've never seen Stranger Things, 
because you know, I'm a busy, busy guy. But I have seen it, obviously, and I, I grew up reading Stephen King stories and it feels very Stephen Kingy as well. And there's, mm. a, there's a bully character who's a bit psychotic and that's a very Stephen Kingy trope. And it's interesting that this is coming out just a couple of weeks ahead of It Chapter 2. And I wonder if that might be why this wasn't held back for Halloween, that they wanted to get out ahead of It Chapter 2. For me, this does every bit as good a job as the first It, It Chapter 1 of marshalling likable young teenage characters and a sense of nostalgia with, with the shocks and the scares. So I really liked it. I I would go uh, four stars for this, but, you know, don't listen to me. What do I know? Three stars then for scary stories to tell in the dark. And speaking of scary stories <coughs> to tell in the dark, what if an alligator got mm. into your house and started just running around like it had the run of the place? Yeah, that's essentially what's happening in Crawl. So uh, we have Kaya Scaldelario's swimmer who heads home to uh, visit her estranged father who's played by Barry Pepper because there's a hurricane. He hasn't been answering his phone. What the heck? Where is he? And it turns out that that was a super bad idea. There's flooding coming. The, the weather is appalling. And so they are trapped in a space with alligators. No. How and they alligators? are big alligators. Well, initially... One alligator. Let's. I don't feel it's too big a spoiler to say that alligators, plural, become mm. a problem during the film. Um, I actually really like this, and and uh, I'm, I'm slightly at odds with uh, lovely James White, who wrote our review in that in that respect. This is very stripped back. It's under ninety minutes, so it's literally get them into this situation as fast as possible, and then throw as many complications at them as m- much as possible. When you say complications, you mean alligators, right? There I mostly do mean, most of the complications do have an alligatory look about them for mm. sure. There is one ham-headed decision. Like there's one point where you're just screaming at the screen, don't do that, do the other thing. Kaisco Delario put some ham on her head to distract the crocodiles. <laughs> that kind of thing. From... And it's like, that doesn't make any right. sense. How is that going to distract if them? I They're just going to the eat your head. On top of my head. <laughs> It'll eat the ham. It'll eat the ham. And, and, and not my head Anyway, so this really worked for me because I'm very easily scared and I was extremely scared basically throughout. And I thought it was really nicely. I think the pacing is great. I think it's just really, really quick. Mm-hmm. Um, and like Alexander I say, Aja? Alexander Aja, yeah, exactly, yeah. directing. And it's just boom, boom, boom. There's hardly any time given to real character development to particularly deep insight into these people. It's just they've it. got to deal with one problem at a time and most of the problems coming at them are, as I aforementioned, alligators so yeah I really enjoyed it I mean look I can see absolutely why James said what he did in the review it's underwritten at a time you know it, I, after a certain point maybe there aren't enough new twists for, for you um, but I you know it was so quick in and out that I was kind of okay with that so um, so yeah James gave it two but I would I would go for an easy three all right. Okay. Upgrade everything this week. Oh, Every review it. we talk about, just add an extra star to it. Uh, so that is two stars then for Crawl. But really, that sounded like a five to me, Helen, <laughs> if, if I'm honest with you. Uh, and then speaking of films that also received a star rating from Empire Magazine this week. Oh, my God. That's such a great segue, Chris. We move on to Pain and Glory, mm-hmm. which is a new film, of course, from Pedro yeah, the second entry in the Pain and Gain universe. I'm kidding. It's really not. <laughs> I apologise to Senor Almodovar uh, for even suggesting it. So this is about Antonio Banderas's character, uh, Salvador Mayo, who is uh, a Spanish filmmaker. He has a slightly Almodovarian edge to him. 
I mean, there's the spiky up hair and there's a, there's a slight sense that maybe this is, you know, at least a little bit autobiographical. I'm not saying it actually is. But he is, uh, he's been out of work for the past few years when we meet him because of just a series of health problems, but basically pain, just a huge amount of pain that he's in all the time. And uh, what brings him sort of to this new stage in his life is the 30th anniversary of a hit he made in the 80s called Sabor, which has a great poster that you see at one point. It's just a fantastic poster. I want it on my wall. But they want him and his leading man, who he fought with all those years ago, to come and do a joint Q&A about this film. So he goes off to see this leading man, see if he can, you know, patch things up, Mm -hmm. make friends again. Mm -hmm. Anyway, one thing leads to another, and soon they're both doing heroin. Um, <laughs> Whoa, that escalated quickly. <laughs> it kind of, I mean, this is a very funny film. It's a very emotional film. It's a very personal film, but is also full of those kind of weird, funny, ridiculous kind of things that just happen. So you know, when you just you meet an old friend you haven't seen for a while and then you're just doing heroin. I mean, we've all, all been time. there, haven't we? You're catching up you and know. then you're shooting up. and then <laughs> yes, That's why I'm looking forward to going back to Belfast. Anyway, if there are any police <laughs> not, listening not, still, please. Yeah, don't. Anyway, so I am looking forward to going back to Belfast. I am too. But not um, for heroin. No. But this is just a fantastic story. It is a fantastic study of this man's life, of, of the way he's kind of built this protective shell around himself, um, which is all holding him in and, and sort of suppressing his creativity, but also it's the only way he's finding to kind of protect himself from all the pain mm-hmm. of the world. And it's kind of whether he can get past that. And then there's a whole other story where there are sort of flashbacks where we see childhood memories, uh, we see Penelope Cruz and her young son, you know, growing up in less than ideal circumstances, trying to make the best of it, trying to sort of find his way in life. There's a lot going on in those scenes. There's a lot of texture in those scenes and a lot of kind of nostalgia, but also kind of a clear eyed look at the past and a clear eyed look at maybe, you know, some things that were less ideal. And this struggle to maybe try and break this shell around himself in the present. I just think it's a fantastic, fantastic film. It's one where the plot is pretty much impossible to describe beyond half the things I've said. Yeah, Yeah. Um, But it's a brilliant performance from Antonio Banderas. Like, if he is not up for an Oscar for this next year, it's because nobody watches the foreign films. Like, there's no other possible explanation. He's wonderful in it. And, you know, the the sort of... The supporting cast do great work as well, but really Mm. it's, it's very much his film. He's in almost every scene, and he is remarkable. Finally, the Oscar nomination, he was uh, sadly denied for Assassins. And the Mask of Zorro, yeah. Mainly Assassins. I think we can all all agree on that. Uh, Is that gif of him, you know, that that gif that people use when you're just like, oh, Mm. I've done something really, and he leans back in his chair and he goes, oh, isn't that from, what's that from? That's from Assassins, isn't it? No, it's not. It's not from, was he in the net? No. You're thinking of Jeremy Northam. I am. Always. Always. (laughs) Uh, anyway, this is fantastic. Yes. We gave it four stars. Sounds like you're on a five. I might be. Sounds like you're on a five. Mm, but so I do like, like a bit of Almodovar. Ooh, also... You pronounce like, it so beautifully. Thank you. His house is incredible. Look at this guy's house. Look at every detail. Look at the toaster. It's look that Dolce & Gabbana Smeg toaster. Oh my God, it's about 400 pounds, but it's incredible. For the toaster alone, go see it. If it go see it for the toaster and stay for the rest of the film. So... Four stars in for uh, pain and glory. And, you know, depending on your uh, your heroin usage, add or deduct a star. As as you see... <laughs> no, don't deduct one. Don't, don't, and don't use heroin. And don't use heroin. Why do we have to always More say this name for podcasts? It's like a real disclaimer. Don't use heroin. <laughs> the winners don't do drugs. Don't do any of that stuff. Uh, anyway, Ben. Don't do drugs. Do Satanism. 
Oh, oh okay. Um, as your lawyer. But, <laughs> sure. Uh, as we're going to discuss. So this is the film uh, Hail Satan. It's a documentary by Penny Lane that is a really, really funny, extremely entertaining documentary about the nicest, most well-meaning Satanists you could ever hope to meet. So this is a documentary about the Satanic Temple, which is a religious organization which sprung up in America in 2013, led by this guy called Lucian Greaves. Good Satanist name. It's Love a it. very yeah. It's obviously a self-chosen name, uh, and these Satanists are here, as they say, to spread a message of goodwill and benevolence and open-mindedness and free expression. Oh. Uh, they're very, they're pro LGBT. They are anti Westboro Baptist Church. Amen. Uh, they pick litter. They give dry socks to the homeless. All under the guise of Satanism, and basically, it kind of explores the sort of values of the satanic temple and why they've come about and their argument is sort of that america is not an inherently christian nation mm-hmm. but at a time now where these sort of more evangelical christian values are starting to come to the fore in america they want to ensure that the separation of church and state needs to be upheld so they go about that in some very funny sort of ways and it's them basically sort of trolling people but also genuinely believing that America needs no one particular religion to take prominence so it's about them kind of coming up with ways to stop that from happening it's a really funny and really interesting documentary and there are lots of like amusing images all the way throughout honestly the thing it reminded me of most was what we do in the shadows <laughs> and they, they play very much into the sort of stereotypical imagery of satanism goat heads but the, goat heads the baphomet statue um but at the same time it's it's set against the mundanity of the everyday so they're trying to organize some kind of event at harvard uh, a black mass actually is what it is they're trying to organize a black mass at harvard and they get kicked out at the last minute and have to go to a local chinese restaurant to do it in there instead <laughs> there are all these sorts of amazing really funny kind of little moments in there uh, it's a really entertaining documentary and it does raise some quite interesting ideas around what is a sort of political belief what is a religious belief they're kind of trolling but they're also making quite a serious point about all religions are welcome but it shouldn't be that christianity is the default and the satanists are going to be there to make sure that never happens i'm persuaded it's a funny film you should go and see it. even if it's the sort of thing where you're like oh i'm not sure i'd go and see a documentary at the cinema yeah. um you go is like 90 minutes or so and you'd have a really fun time and then after that, watch Race with the Devil, which reminds you the Satanists <laughs> are badness. <laughs> nice double pill there. Uh, four stars? Four stars. Four stars then for Hail Satan. Do you yeah, it's, right? a, it's a Ron Burgundy title. Okay. It's got a question <laughs> mark good. at the end. Sounds good to me. And last but not least this week, it appears I'm the only person in this uh, room who has seen Angel Has Fallen. Oh, which I regret and intend to correct as soon as possible. At your earliest convenience. Yeah. I'm just going to look up some screenings for you. So, for example... Oh, Odeon, Lord. Camden Town, 1245, 1530, 1815 or I'm probably not going to come to Camden for it, but thanks, Chris. I will, I will Google it on my own. You tell the people about the film. Okay, so Angel Has Fallen. It is two hours, one minute. It is rated 15. It is uh, action. It is playing at Odeon Swiss Cottage Chris, tomorrow again, at 2145. Really and so at the few Finchley Road. No, let's not go through the whole... Stats, tell us your opinion about the My film. My opinion of this film. This film is a movie which stars Gerard Butler. He once again returns to play Mike Banning. Right. 
Oh, you want more? Okay, yeah, a little bit more. I'm not used to this reviewing. Look at my own. Oh, no. uh, so this is the third in the Has Fallen sequence series. <laughs> uh, and this time Jerry has fallen because no. he is the angel of the title. As you heard in the interview, Angel has fallen initially referred to uh, Air Force One. And then someone, although this is not Jerry Butler's version of it, but someone presumably went, hang on, isn't there already a movie where the president is on Air Force One and is taken over by terrorists? And what's it called? Oh, I don't know. Air Force One. <laughs> Check that one out. And so they decided to change it. So now Mike Banning, he's still uh, in charge of looking after the president and making sure the president doesn't get off. And the president in this case is Morgan Freeman. And uh, no sign of Aaron Eckhart as President Benjamin Asher in in this movie, not even really referred to, which is which is strange. But uh, but there you go. So uh, Alan Trumbull is now the president of the United States of America and is absolutely the president with the first four letters T R U M in his name that I can get behind. No question about that. Truman. Trumbull. Truman's also good, <laughs> but much better than you know. The other fella, sure. The you know, I don't want to say it. And don't you don't need to. But I think we all get what you're. Trumps any other candidate, if you ask me. But anyway, so he is uh, feeling the ravages of life protecting President Benjamin Asher and other presidents from uh, terrorist attacks, and um, so he's getting addicted to painkillers and he's got some psychological torment and whatnot. So much so that he's forgotten to notice that his wife is now played by someone completely different. Uh, <laughs> Rada Mitchell in the uh, first movie is now Piper Parabo in this one, so he doesn't he doesn't spot that. So immediately you know something's off about Mike Bannon in this movie. And then uh, there is an assassination attempt made on the president's life, no. and Mike Bannon is framed for this. No! He's the only other survivor. This is in the trailer. He's the only other survivor of the attack. And even though it would make no sense for him to be, <laughs> to position himself as the only survivor of this attack, uh, the uh, he is arrested and then he has to go on the run and he has to figure out who... Who done it? Who done it? Because it isn't obvious from the moment the bad guy of this movie walks on screen. It is not obvious who the bad guy is. And so Mike has to figure out that it's Danny Houston. And <laughs> <laughs> he has to figure it out and uh, and then somehow turn it around and can he save the president's life again and clear his name and make things right. And so to do this. so along the way, he teams up with his dad, who is played by Nick Nolte. No! And uh, there are scenes where Nick Nolte and Jerry Butler... And again, I said this in the interview, but they talked. It's you just see this movie in 4DX because just that dialogue scene alone, I was just Jerry's just rumbling Amazing. around, and it's like being on a washing machine. It's incredible. Um, so this is directed by Rick Roman Waugh, who is directing uh, Jerry B in a film called Greenland. So clearly, they got on like a house on fire. And what's interesting about this is this is a much more serious take on the idea of an unkillable one-man army mm. then Olympus Has Fallen and London Has Fallen which were both very, very quiptastic and both how can we say this had their issues with mm, racial politics mm -hmm. shall we say uh, this movie neatly sidesteps that but there are no quips oh. uh, the bad guys are American in this uh, so it, it addresses some of the criticism of those previous movies and I liked it guys I liked it and I'm the only one in the room uh, who saw the movie and I know we gave it two stars but I thought it was a little harsh I think this is a very <laughs> very solid three stars straight down the middle Jerry Butler action movie you get what you came for which is some really good action sequences uh, you get Jerry Butler doing his action hero thing 
And if that floats your boat, if that's your idea of a good Friday or Saturday night out... It is. You, it is. Well, then, you are in luck because it is playing at the Odeon Tottenham Court Road. Oh, good Lord, I'm not going to Tottenham Court Road. 12 o'clock, 14.45, 17.30. OK, where do you want Just to go? while you've got the information there, does um, Colin Salmon return as Kevin Hazard? No, Kevin Hazard no, is what? waiting for his own spin-off movie, um, <laughs> Hazard's <laughs> Hazard Times. <laughs> uh, OK, how about the Everyman Barnet? 17.15, Super. Odeon Greenwich. Oh, wait a minute. Odeon Greenwich, that might be more up your street. 1950. Will you do 1950? You're going to see I'm Angel going to has see fallen. Angel has fallen. <laughs> All right. So if anyone wants to uh, stalk Helen O'Hara, she will be going to see <laughs> Angel has fallen tonight. Uh, by the time you listen to this, tomorrow night. To, well, tonight. Oh, tonight. By the time you listen to this, okay, yeah. uh, in just two hours at the uh, Odeon Greenwich. So go and say hello to her. God, there's going to be no un- disappointed people, people there. Cued round the block. Cued round the block. Anyway, two stars for Angel Has Fallen, but in the spirit of generosity that we're uh, applying yeah. to each and every film this week, give it an extra star. We're really nice people in this pod booth. Everybody else at Empire is really down on stuff, but yeah. we love stuff. We love films. Mm. We just love them. We love them to bits. That's it for this week's Empire podcast, brought to you by the National Lottery Cinema Day. Join us next week for more film-related fun, where we'll be joined by... <laughs> I can't remember. Oh, yeah, I did it today. Louis Leterrier, who Yay. is <laughs> director of The <laughs> Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance, and uh, he was a lot of fun. I think there's someone else. We're hopefully going to get Joanna Hogg as well, the director Ooh. of The Souvenir. So we shall see what happens with that. And uh, do come see our live shows. They're going to be a lot of fun. I yeah, they are. Semi-guarantee. Uh, right, until then, until we meet again, until at auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from Benjamin Travis. Hail Satan. <laughs> it is goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to watch Keanu Reeves have 40 winks. After all, I know where the bastard sleeps. Are you Thanks casting for- aspersions on his parentage? No, not at all. <laughs> So, so, so his personality? No, he's a lovely guy. So why are you calling him a bastard? <laughs> oh, thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye. Bye.